Greetings, friends. This is Why Whiskey, a history podcast with a whiskey problem. Or is it a whiskey podcast with a history problem? We'll let you decide. Head on up to the bar, grab a stool and a drink, and let's talk. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Bar of Questionable Life Choices today. I am joined once again uh, by a professional student and MMA enthusiast, a master of all things parachute. He literally has a license that says that. Ladies and gentlemen, Austin Jackson. Welcome back, buddy. Hey, good to be here. I like the new intro. Not not the Afro Man part, but the actual yeah. <laughs> the full on uh, ensemble is pretty cool. I like it. That's yeah, cool. yeah, it's uh, I, I'm becoming a real boy. Yeah, almost, yeah. almost, almost. So uh, today's whiskeys, uh, we're going to be uh, dabbling in some Irish whiskeys today. A little bit of uh, Irish whiskey kick. So we're kicking off with uh, with some patties, and uh, uh, they come out of the Cork Distillery. Pretty pretty good. I think did a little uh, a little feature on them a couple shows back, so that's uh, that's where we're gonna start with nice light color. That's smooth. Yeah, man. <clears throat> Whoa, <laughs> caught a, a bubble in my throat. I hate that sound. Oh, it's terrible. All right, so uh, the lead-in music uh, kind of give you uh, gives you a hint on what we're talking about, and if you saw the title of the show. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about drugs. Uh, believe it or not, uh, Austin and I talk about drugs quite often. Uh, not allowed to do them because of our profession, and we do not do them, but we do spend a lot of time talking about them and a lot of really cool uh, intricacies and weird things about them and just some really cool shit. So that's why we figured we'd, uh, we'd bring him in and, and we would share those conversations that he and I have regularly in the office with all of you guys. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of drug use, what are drugs, uh, drug history um, in America, and, and a bunch of other different things along the way. So when we say drugs, what are we talking about? That, I mean, that's a pretty good question because drugs is kind of a lazy word, right? Like it kind of all encompasses many things. I mean, you, drugs is 
caffeine, <laughs> sugar, uh, tea, you know, I, I, it, 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 well, depending on the tea, of course, but, uh, you know, everything from nicotine, then you go all the way to heroin, you know, it's a pretty, uh, pretty big rainbow there, that word. And, uh, you know, you go into a drug store and there's all kinds of acceptable drugs for you. And then people use just the word drug, like all the dare ads, like being against drugs. It's like, that's not very distinct, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah. Loose word, right? Yeah, it, it is. And it's always amazing to me that we throw in, you know, you said it right there, you know, the a tea to heroin, right? You, you look at, you look at heroin as the, you know, one of the bad ones. Uh, but then you look at, you know, caffeine, coffee, those kinds of things, booze, you know, whiskey itself is, is considered a drug. And that word has taken such a negative connotation. Uh, and it's become a it, socially unacceptable, but accepted at the same time. Like, uh, I need to clean that up. Um, it's okay, but it's still looked on as one of those things that's like, uh, it's like a bad word. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we definitely use it. Usually when you hear it, somebody say the word drug, uh, they're, they don't use it friendly. I mean, we use other words. We use medicine. Uh, or we just say it's alcohol. You know, I've literally heard people be like, hey, you know, they'll talk about beer, but if you call that a drug, it's like, no, no, no. We only think of drugs of like... Uh, the excessive use of something or something that has a higher potency or at least appears to have a higher potency or ability to uh, cause some trouble or at least suppose it, you know, we've talked about the, the drug scheduling and this and that. And, you know, sometimes the reality is a little bit different from the picture we paint for ourselves. Yeah. And so let me ask you this though. We're, we're talking about substance things you know, something we consume or inject or whatever, could we open up the definition of that word to behavioral things as well? Mm. Do you think? Um, you know, because we, we make that, you know, the, the joke, uh, uh, oh, here comes my, uh, my pop music junkie, uh, you know, Kesha's got a song, you know, your love is my drug, right? And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, so we, we hear that, you know, skydiving, people refer to that as, you know, that's my, you know, they'll, they'll slap their elbow and be like, yeah, that's my, that's my shit right there. Well, it's interesting because I, I don't know if you could call the outside influence a drug. I'd have to look at the exact definition of it. But we are a biochemical machine and we are running on drugs. Everything we eat makes different drugs. Our emotional reaction makes different drugs for us. I mean, adrenaline's a drug. Uh, we produce that. You can feel it when you get in those uh, exciting moments, whether somebody's punching you in the face or you're jumping out of an airplane. It's like uh, something something just changed, you know? It's drastic, it's real, and uh, I didn't just put anything in my body. But it's weird, you know, sometimes we, we like to think of ourselves as kind of in control of our bodies, but it's kind of like that, that old, uh, you are what you eat, because you really are, you know? Have donuts every day for five days. You're not the same person after, not just physically, but mentally. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling attacked right now. Um, get off my breakfast choices. So looking at, at humans as these, these bio machines um, that produce and consume uh, drugs and all this stuff and is, is a very interesting way to look at ourselves and as, as people. We don't think about like endorphins 
you know, uh, you, you have a good match rolling on the mat or I go for a, a, a long ass run and that, that super good feeling you feel afterwards, it's a chemical reaction in your brain. So it makes me question why or what has caused, uh, the negative response to drugs and, and to, to I think to, to kind of even begin to scratch the surface on that question, we got to go way back like like way way back because i think in i think it was ancient egypt they had a a plant that they would chew that caused like a uh you know uh an opening of the mind or some shit like that I, I don't know what it was i don't remember what the plant was but uh but we're talking you know so there's there's some sort of poison right for lack of a better word some sort of chemical that that is a, a mild hallucinogen. Yeah. Right. And they're using that to find enlightenment in the netherworld or some shit, you know? I, I think that goes back to how we paint our self image. I think, uh, I mean, we have shamans in every culture, you know, throughout time. But I think as civilization grows, we tend to think that we aren't the animals anymore. We don't have to have a symbiotic relationship with what we eat, what we do. And that sometimes we'll put the value on a higher power that we can't maybe physically show or see you know and then it becomes more internal or separate from ourselves and separate of the you know the realm of where we walk and uh i i think that what you see is that civilizations will try to give up the shamanism because it looks like savagery you know what i mean uh we we like to make things pretty you know the the perfect example is you get on the internet and watch a bunch of meat eaters tear apart a hunter on instagram you know somebody kills something and people are like you can't kill you know did you have meat today yeah but it's different i got it from the store it's like that's murder like like, you are disconnected from what we are we're fucking animals you know what i mean so uh, i think sometimes we we get in the way of ourselves. We don't want to think that, you know, whether it's religious or just a self-image that we need anything, you know, it's like, I don't need a drug to communicate with a higher power or, or, or have something that helps me get through the day or to change my mindset. Uh, and, and it's scary because you see somebody who gets on a certain medication and then they get attached to it. It looks like a ball and chain. It can be intimidating and you don't want that in your, everyday life, whether it's spiritual or physical. And I think a lot of people get worried about that, you know, and they don't, and when it's in their religion, it's like, you know, I don't need a phone to call God. And it's like, well, taking some mushrooms and people start communicating with God. I mean, that's his experience. You can't, you know, the, the religious experience is personal. You can't prove it, you know? <laughs> so so he, he used the mushroom. <laughs> the, I mean, that, that could be, you know, uh, we could go down a rabbit hole with religion itself. Um, uh, as, as far as, uh, you know, that being in, in our own minds and drugs being the, you know, and there's, there's no way to ever quantify that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a real experience to that person, but there's no way for them to share that with us because it all happened psychologically or, or, uh, you know, uh, subconsciously or, you know, in those weird nooks and crannies of the brain that we have no idea about whatsoever. So, so you brought up religion and I, I kind of want to, I want to sit here for a sec. Drug use in religions. Is that a thing? Absolutely. And it still is, even in America. We actually, we let people waive those Schedule 1, Schedule 2 drugs and allow them to use them. We, we still allow people in religious settings to use peyote, San Pedro, which is mescaline. And we also, I believe in Kentucky, people are doing ayahuasca. If you didn't know that, you join the church 
and they're doing dimethyltryptamine, you know, which is already made in your body, but a schedule one drug. So pretty funny. Interesting. That's a, that's a tea, right? The ayahuasca? The ayahuasca. Yes, it's a tea. So uh, dimethyltryptamine is already made inside your body. Uh, and you, we know that it's made in the lungs. Some people believe it's made in the pineal gland, which has a lot of symbols throughout religion. Even at the, you know, at Catholic churches, you see a lot of this pine cone ideology and it gets really weird there. I'm not the historian, but uh, it, it goes down some rabbit holes, uh, especially with symbolism, because symbolism ties right there, you know, whether we're looking at, you know, old art or paintings on the walls. But uh, to back to the dimethyltryptamine, it's, uh, it's naturally in most animals, most plants, and we keep finding it in more things as people are doing the research. But we have these MAOs, or uh, <laughs> if they're paired with an MAO, uh, it allows it to actually be absorbed into our body and become psychoactive. So usually we have these uh, enzymes in our stomach that go, no, we're not gonna let you do that. And we just pass it through the body, even though we already have it in our body. It's like, we're not gonna let this go into the, past the blood uh, brain barrier and trip you out. <laughs> no freaking out right now, we got stuff to do. But uh, when it's mixed with one other plant, which the tea is just two plants, one high concentration of dimethyltryptamine, one has the MAO. And uh, MAOI, I'm probably destroying it. And I definitely <laughs> won't say the full com uh, compound. If you, if you, if you want to Google it and try to say it, then that could be fun. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, they're, I mean, they're doing it, and I, I believe it's Kentucky. And it's allowed in the Amazon and in South America. It's completely legal. So it's, it's interesting where we put our rules. And like I said, the, the mescaline was used by Native Americans and, and still is, you know. Uh, and funny enough, how we treat our certain plants just goes to show you can't you can't buy a weed plant anywhere for the hemp use, even if you're not using it psychedelically. But you can go to the store and buy a San Pedro cactus because it's just not common practice to use it religiously. You can put it out in your yard and you're like, that's very pretty. That is a psychedelic cactus. Saw it all the time in Arizona, which is just interesting to me. I'm like, whoa, he has an entire yard of psychedelic cactuses. <laughs> he has no idea. He thinks they look really pretty. But if you had a yard of cannabis. Yeah, I was gonna say, if, there was, if those were uh, uh, five-pointed leaves hanging out in the front yard, yeah, there'd be, uh, there'd be something in there. Um, uh, okay, so, so we accept it uh, in some places in religion. We, it has its place in religion. Uh, it also has its uh, a no go zone uh, in religion as well. So it, it's really interesting to kind of see the, the the polar opposites of this is okay here, but this is not okay here, and to where it's like it's the worst thing ever. And <laughs> and I think there's a lot of uh, influence brought onto that, at least in our our country, with how we have developed our view on drugs and how the government has developed its position and its stance on drugs. And that's been very interesting. We saw this with, with booze as well. You know, it went through uh, highs and lows and then eventually into prohibition. Um, and we'll kind of we'll kind of make that connection back here in a little bit. But so with all these rules that the government puts on it and then exceptions to those rules that the government makes, the government's used it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, uh, I mean, we... <laughs> I, I know I know where you're getting at with the MK Ultra. I know we talked about that a little bit. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, and I think you've talked about it on the podcast before, or you were on another podcast, but uh, M MK Ultra, uh, it was a CIA-run operative to figure out if they could use LSD to either 
influence people, uh, make mind control out of them. Uh, the, MK Ultra actually was pretty encompassing too. Outside of the LSD, they were trying. It, it's where the movie The Men That Stare at Goats started. Uh, it's. I mean, they tried to see if people could talk telepathically, walk through walls, see the future. I mean, the government dropped a lot of money into that, and uh, we had some some laws come around because of that because they kind of went free reign on the people. Uh, they were giving people LSD against their knowledge, uh, specifically the uh, Operation Midnight Climax, where they were taking people off the street with prostitutes, taking them into a area to drink alcohol and hang out and hook up with these prostitutes, and then they were spiking them with LSD, which, talk about a nightmare, <laughs> which... Uh, that would be the worst evening ever because <laughs> you're going into that situation with one goal. And next thing you know, there's pink elephants flying across the room. <laughs> well, well, things just got serious. Yeah. You, you were either having a psychotic break or a full-on religious experience, and, <laughs> and you're in a hotel with a shady woman. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm, None of that can end well. Like yeah. it, not, yeah. it, it, just, it just can't go. So with the MK Ultra. Um, I, obviously there's, there's not a whole lot of, uh, uh I, I don't know how much of it has been declassified. Uh, and this is pure speculation and opinion here. I mean, do you, do you think that there is still a use? Do you think that there is still programs that exist that are trying to exploit, um, benefits, uh, and maybe uh, weaponization of, narcotics it wouldn't surprise me at all with how much stuff has came out and mind you when mk ultra and all of that that paperwork got shown by the cia um i'm trying to remember if it was ford or who originally put i, I think i have it somewhere in my notes uh yeah ford in 1976 did the executive order uh where you, you could no longer do experimentation on human subjects without their knowledge which, mind you, that's that's 1976. <laughs> There's no more just when, spiking people. When did when did the MK Ultra program start? Uh, MK Ultra started. Uh, where is it? Isn't I know I had this written somewhere. It's in the 50s for right? sure. It, it it was the 50s because I know Frank Olson. It was in 1953 that he uh, he jumped out of the window. That's the whole Wormwood documentary on Netflix. Also really insane. Uh, but yeah, uh, lots of conspiracies there. Uh, it was going on for years. 20, 25 years <laughs> and, and, until someone like. is like, "Hey, we're not. What are we doing? What are we doing with the American people? Uh, they, you can't do that." Uh, and a lot of the paperwork got destroyed. So the documents that we have and can prove that are already startling were the ones that weren't first to the shredder, <laughs> and that's always insane. You know, the, when when we look at what the our own government puts out every once in a while, like Operation Paperclip, you know, where we took all these uh, Nazi scientists and slipped them right into NASA, you know? It's like it's like we're locking people up. They're running to the four winds. We've got people in South America. Nazis are just spreading, just trying to lose all affiliation. And we're like, well, we'll keep the smart ones and hire them, you know, and just kind of wipe the slate clean, you know? <laughs> and, and, and that's open knowledge. <laughs> it, so it scares you what could have got destroyed. Build us a rocket and we'll forgive uh, all of your past trans. Yeah, that's that, that's insane to me. So th that was Operation Paperclip, you said? Yeah, Paperclip. All right. So we do weird shit for science and we make exceptions to uh, to some uh, 
perceived moral uh, limitations. Like we take exception to those yeah. uh, when it's based around uh, drugs. And, and again, the, we saw that during Prohibition. Yeah. You know, lawlessness went off the charts. Uh, it, was, it was a crazy time. And there was a lot of folks just not enforcing it uh, when it came to, to alcohol-related things. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, it, well, it's just you, you, you see it where it becomes fear-based, you know? And uh, a, a smart person with a bad goal or a good talker who's full of fear can sell a lot of people on doing some pretty fucked up shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's a dude that you said that gorgeously. Yeah. And, and, and you see it, I mean, the, just taking it even back to the, the marijuana stuff. And, and I don't, I can't remember the guy's name, but a lot of people don't realize that marijuana, when it first got schedule one, it was completely a fight in between big paper company and hemp. And then there was all this negative propaganda where, hey, and that's where the, the word marijuana actually started. It was cannabis. It had these other terminologies and where they started calling it weed because they were naming it after a Mexican weed, called it the wrong plant. We still do it. Hilarious. Kind of like showing up here and thinking it was India and calling Native Americans Indians forever. Uh, like, like, we were like, ah, you're still Indians. So, so we were like, ah, it's still marijuana. No, it's not. But uh, we, they, they – did this huge smear campaign, which was essentially uh, <laughs> black men and Mexican men are smoking this marijuana, which is the wrong name, and they're raping white women. And people are like, oh, shit, that's happening here? Well, I don't want that. And quickly, marijuana was demonized, you know, <laughs> or cannabis. I'm sitting there calling it marijuana as well. So, And then uh, guess who makes a lot of money? The paper company, because hemp... I mean, we wrote the fucking constitution on hemp. We used hemp for everything. Uh, weed grows like tomatoes. And <laughs> you can do it anywhere. Uh, it's definitely faster than trees. And uh, we are still having weird relationships with cannabis now. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, so true. So true. And it, so when it comes to the weed, and, and I, I, we're going we're gonna to dive into that the 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 racial uh, issues with that because there is a parallel uh, the temperance movement uh, that that kicked off in the early well it kicked off in the 1850s but took a resurgence at the turn of the 20th century that um, it, a lot of that had to do with uh, with race as well and that's uh, that, that's interesting that it it went both substances and. Uh, that was the drive. So we'll, 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 we'll dig into that, into the, the weeds on that in, in, in just a little bit. So as we kind of work through the process, um, one of the funniest things I, I think I, I found, which you would think would play into the moral uh, obligation to, for, you know, drugs are bad, right? You know, drugs bad, okay. okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> right. But something that would play into that and something that had a, a real chance for uh, propaganda I guess would be Hitler. Hitler was an avid drug user. Uh, cocaine was his thing. Yeah. Old boy would bump a line <laughs> and and go run for days. Really? Uh, and he actually he he fed his guys um, uh, speed. Uh, I don't know what the the chemical. Um, so he would uh, 
he would give his guys uh, speed to to keep them up, to keep them awake, and to keep them fighting and pushing. Well, I think we still do that. Uh, it's uh, it's I, I uh, and we we definitely their do- energy drinks. There's a, it's a, there's a difference. No, we uh we. Uh, I know in recent history, and I don't know if we still do it, but we would give uh, prescribed amphetamines to uh, fighter pilots uh, to keep them going for longer periods of time. Uh, I wish I had all the numbers because I could see your interest. So that's just one of those little tidbits where I'm like, I know it. Trust me, Google. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I mean, that, that's it has been an acceptable process. And what's funny, talking about just getting into the war part, I mean, we have used drugs to motivate soldiers in many wars, uh, the there was an entire uh, group of the Vikings called berserkers, and they would get ridiculously high on mushrooms, and they were ready to go to Valhalla. You know, they got into their spiritual zone and got after it. That doesn't sound like a fun fight to me, <laughs> <laughs> but whatever gets you out of bed in the morning. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, some dude who's tripping on mushrooms is not somebody I want to fight. Yeah, the drugs have had relationships with not only our religious existence but also our wartime existence. And I mean, I mean, think about Vietnam era. Uh, how do people cope in the Badlands? Uh, with anything they could get their hands on, whether that kept them up longer, you know, or whether it let them get a moment of perceived safety, you know? Uh, so, which people came back with some, with some bad situations, came out bad. But uh, it's there. It's, it's tied into the dark parts of our history, too, and we deny that. And Vietnam kind of fed into uh, the, the Controlled Substance Act. Uh, there was, it, it became a thing. Uh, there, there was a lot of other factors that, which we'll talk about, but, but that was, you know, you, you brought up Vietnam and that was one of the things where it was noted. Like it was a thing that they would like, there was, it was, you know, cannabis use was running rampant. Yeah. And so it became super weird. And there was some, some weird, uh, kind of interesting ripples from that, yeah. um, which I thought was, was awesome. But if we're, uh, let's, let's go back now we talked about Hitler. We're going to back it up just a, a little bit further. 1912 uh, starts this weird campaign against heroin in America, right? And not necessarily against it. And this is what I think is really <laughs> we, we we did this a lot as a country. We haven't done it recently that I can recall. But um, when we want to control something, we don't go like straight up and say this is off limits. We try to tax it. So, uh, in, uh, December, uh, December 17th of 1914, the Harrison act gets passed and it establishes taxation on narcotics. So in hopes to channel their, uh, their, how they travel through and to provide control. So they're not just willy nilly, you know, out everywhere. And so, so this, this kicks off in 1914, uh, cannabis is added to that list because uh, originally it starts with, uh, I think it's uh, it's heroin and cocaine. I think were the first two that were that were like thrown on that for for taxation so they could control it. And then cannabis gets thrown in there, and to be a a registered dealer, this is cool. I'm gonna I, I want to read this. Make sure okay. I get it right. Um, So if you were a registered dealer, you paid $10, I think, an ounce that you sold. And then if you were an 
unregistered dealer, I did the little finger quotes for those of you sitting at home, uh, <laughs> you paid, you still, you still paid, uh, but you had to pay $100 an ounce that you sold. Wow. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, so I'll, I'll look through and I'll get, uh, I'll get the, the, the hard, uh, the hard numbers on that. But it was, it, it was funny that they had registered and unregistered. You both, you had to pay taxes on it. So it, it's not that they came out and said that this substance is illegal. They didn't do that until they established the scheduling system with the Controlled Substance Act. But they said, you know, we're, we're not going to make it illegal. We're just going to say if you use it, you got to pay, you got to pay the government for it. And which we see now has come back full circle. Um, but we're kind of working our way up that timeline. Yeah. So we'll, we'll kind of get there here soon. But before we move on, let's grab a drink. Are you empty? I am empty. Are you rinsed? I am not rinsed, but I will do that. So rinsing your glass, right? If we're doing like a legit tasting, you've got multiple glasses. Uh, we're just sipping whiskey. So we're going to use the same glass. A little water keeps us hydrated. Uh, all right. Excellent. Water. Water's gross. So, all right. So go ahead. Oh, no. I was about to say, because I just I, I know we're going off the rails. Uh, ADHD people are probably loving it. Some people are like, I'd like to see it finished. W- was there more to the Hitler and cocaine? Was there more to the amphetamine Nazis? Because uh, that definitely spiked my interest. I did not know that. Um, there, there is a lot more. Um, it, so there was a, it was a documentary on, on YouTube which I'll, I'll post in the show notes and you guys can go check it out and watch it. And it, it talked about, it was mainly a performance enhancer. Yeah. So he, he didn't get into like the psychedelic shit and the weird, like, you know, uh, the, you know, purple elephants, whatever, you know, um, I'm not sure why I always go to elephants, but Dumbo. Yeah. Dumbo is the, the, the reason why, do you ever watch the, the old school cartoon Dumbo? Yeah. Big ears. Yeah. Flying around elephant. You and him and the mouse get drunk <laughs> off of off of like the you know the time frame of the of that cartoon was when whiskey was mixed with a lot of bad shit and yeah. so uh, Dumbo and uh, I forget what the mouse's name um, you know a, a bottle gets dumped into their water they drink it and now they're freaking they're they're hammered and then they fall asleep. And all of the the pink elephants on parade comes. Yeah. I've, I've been hard drunk a couple times in my life, and I have never seen pink elephants. So they were definitely on some sort of psychedelic trip, right? And then they woke up in a tree. Now I've woke up in a tree before, but but without the, the yeah, elephants. Yeah. That was a story there. It was a bush. Okay, <laughs> baby tree. I'm never going back to that church again. All right, so we are going to a single grain, uh, double barrel Irish whiskey called Glendaluck. Uh, it is, uh, they're not new. I think they're a, a restart of an old distillery aged in bourbon barrels and then finished in Oloroso. So this is a dry whiskey. Ooh. Yeah. So if you're a, I can't see the backside of your glass. So if I give you too much, I'm sorry. You good? What a bummer. Too much whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> There is no such. Mark Twain had a great quote about that. I don't want to misquote it, so I won't say it right now. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Oh, that is unique. It's a little different. The finish is very, that you get that, that really dry. I've experienced this with a couple of bourbons, and Four Roses is the one 
their their single barrel comes across as being like this it finishes super super dry like a, a real dry wine kind of leaves that like the the back of your tongue wanting to to get a drink that makes sense yeah because i always drink a lot of like uh cabernets when i'm like drinking wine i yeah. like it dark and you know thick not too i don't want sweet wine you know it's like like dark chocolate for me and yeah that i i can i can see that with the tongue that same kind of thick and then dry right after it finishes yeah that makes sense yeah it's it's breathed well so the, so when i i first had that i don't know about a week half ago i opened it up and uh uh taking the neck was not it was not good uh <laughs> but uh that this is this is definitely way better definitely way better all right so now we're going to move into we're going to talk about scheduling and we're going to talk about so we're kind of moving up into the the 70s realm right so we're kind of working our way through the controlled substance act of 1970 establishes the scheduled document it puts weed or excuse me weed (laughs) it puts drugs into uh categories into schedules (laughs) <laughs> uh, factors that determine how it gets scheduled uh, uh, is uh, how addictive it is, what its potential for uh, like a, a bane on society or a, a charge is what they call it on society, which is, you know, debts like so if we have to pay for rehabilitation as a government, you know, and, and those kinds of things. And, and I know you've got a, a ton of information on this, so I'm, I'm going to cut you loose here in just a second. You can share with us all of the ins and outs. Uh, but let me get the numbers right. Factors at determining of controlled uh, or removal from schedules. This is off of the uh, DEA website. Uh, link will be in the show notes. So, uh, in making any finding under, and this is a uh, paragraph C, uh, part the sorry part B, section eight one one paragraph C. So, in making any finding under a subsection of this section or under oh my God, it's legal words Ugh. of section eight twelve, the attorney general shall considering. Con- the ter- you can do it. <laughs> I'm here for you. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Let me start over. So let me take a break and cut to something. Uh, I can't read today, and, and it's all Austin's fault. <laughs> so oh, oh boy literally put together the best going away party I have ever had, uh, ever. And, uh, and it involved a ridiculous amount of whiskey. So um, it's, it's your fault. That's fair. That I can't read. Yeah, that was a good time. But thank you. I'm bouncing back with the whiskey. (laughs) It's it's that hair of the dog, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so here we go. The attorney general shall consider the following factors with respect to each drug or other substance proposed to be controlled or removed from the schedules. Number one, it's actual or relative potential for abuse. Number two, scientific evidence of its pharmacological effect if known. Number three, the state of current scientific knowledge regarding the drug or other substance number four its history and current pattern of abuse number five the scope duration and significance of abuse number six what if any risk there is to the public health number seven its psychic or psych physiological dependence liability and number eight whether the substance is an immediate precursor of a substance already controlled under the subchapter so those eight factors and there's a lot of words, yeah. right? <laughs> Determine whether it can come off or go on. But that's kind of bullshit. Yeah. Ready, go. 
Well, it's, it's a whole lot of bullshit. So I'll, I'll, I'll help, you know, drag it along by giving some examples. And this is right off the DEA website. So I, I, I think it's interesting. Schedule one. Drugs, substances, or chemicals are defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. That's your Schedule 1. One is the worst. Some examples of Schedule 1 drugs include heroin, LSD, cannabis, ecstasy, peyote. Wait, what was that third one again? <laughs> the, the third one? Ecstasy? Oh, 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 cannabis. 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 Weird. Okay, continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so peyote being, like I talked about earlier, same as San Pedro, mescaline. Uh, one they don't have right here, but when you get the full alphabetic list, which is quite intensive. Uh, dimethyl, 17 pages. Dimethyltryptamine is also in that. So the one where if you put two plants together, uh, you're high, already made in your body. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, schedule two drugs. Substances or chemicals are defined as drugs with high potential for abuse. With use potentially leading to severe psychological or physical dependence. These drugs are also considered dangerous. Some examples of schedule two are Vicodin, cocaine, methamphetamine, methadone. Uh, not going to... Say that one, Oxycontin, Fentanyl, Adderall, Ritalin. Uh, of course, the list goes on and on when we're talking about Schedule 2. These are just some examples. And now we get a little bit lighter. So Schedule 3, uh, substances or chemicals are defined as drugs with moderate or low potential for physical and psychological dependence. Schedule 3 drugs abuse potential is less than Schedule 1 and 2 drugs, but more than Schedule 4. Whoa, get after it, DA. <laughs> <laughs> Their math is perfect. Products containing less than 90 milligrams of codeine per dosage unit. Tylenol and codeine. That's what it started with. Tylenol with, uh, tylenol with codeine. Ketamine. That's fucking, that is a full-on psychedelic synthetic uh, drug that will make you forget an entire day. But right there after Tylenol with codeine. Anabolic steroids. Uh, anabolic steroids. Testosterone. Okay, so <laughs> uh, sometimes it doesn't quite line up perfectly. Schedule four, uh, and, and sorry for anyone who didn't want to listen to all these, but I think getting the, the contrast really, really brings it in, uh, lets you kind of understand where we're at. Substances or chemicals are defined as drugs with low potential for abuse and low risk of dependency. Some examples of this, schedule four drugs, are Xanax, Valium, Tramadol. Schedule five, uh, the, I'll, I'll save you the, the reading about it. It's the least serious. Uh, Robitussin, so you know your cough syrup, AC. Uh, Lomitol, uh, Motifin, I don't even know what that is. Uh, but I think you get the idea. So we, we've, we've got an extreme difference in what are in these areas. And as we've talked about, cannabis is a schedule one drug. Uh, it's a schedule one drug that in the middle of this COVID crisis... I believe it's 29 states deemed it an essential business. Still Schedule 1, people in prison for nonviolent crimes with cannabis, essential business. So <laughs> so when you pull up that that crazy by name list, or, right, the, the alphabetical list, which is uh, ridiculously long, it, marijuana is listed. It's, its drug number is 7360. It is Schedule 1. 
And under the term narcotic, which they give a yes or a no to, it's listed as no. So even on the scheduled document, it's listed as a non-narcotic, which doesn't make any damn sense. And then when we go back to uh, schedules two and three, um, you're, you're telling me that cocaine, right, methadone, um, the, the, like crystal meth, right? Uh, the the yeah. shit that makes people eat other people's faces, like that's a thing? Yeah, uh, l- l- yeah the uh, methamphetamine... Where where is that? At? Methamphetamine falls into yeah. yeah that's schedule that's schedule two. two. Yeah, methamphetamine. Yeah, and so these schedules also uh, carry with them different weight for criminal charges. Absolutely, that's unbelievable. And y- you you mentioned the ketamine specifically. Um, if you've never seen anybody on a ketamine trip, it is well. If if they're taking it medically, it's because they're pretty fucked up. Yeah. Um, but uh, we we had a a guy get hurt on a jump once. And medic came up, and he was it was bad. Um, and so they 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 put him on the they put him on the pony, <laughs> which uh, watching him go from disgusting pain um, and being very loud to then all of a sudden itching his nose to then singing uh, the ballad of uh, the headgear that he wears <laughs> and asking where his weapon was because he had to go shoot bad guys it was it, it went from it went from screaming in pain to completely on cloud nine and and when i look at that right i, I look at that experience and, and so this is a drug that's out there that people can take what happens when somebody uh, does a freaking uh, a run of ketamine and then they go get behind the wheel of a car <laughs> holy shit like you know it, it, drunk driving is a terrible terrible thing and and that's that depressed reaction time uh, kills thousands of people every year. Now you're on freaking you're in a totally different planet. Yeah, and you're behind the wheel of a car. So that's and 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 I, I I'm not saying that uh, driving under the influence of marijuana would be any different or any better, but I, it doesn't make sense to me how they put that scheduling together. And it seems like those that eight criterion that they had. Like they, maybe they don't even read it, and 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 there's a reason for that, I think. Well, what is it? Uh, I think it, it reminds me. I'm, I, I was thinking of a scale. That's what pops in my head, and the scale doesn't weigh out. And I and I instantly think of the movie uh, by uh, Monty Python. The which one is? Is it the Holy Grail where they're like, if she weighs more than the duck, she's a witch. <laughs> yeah, if she weighs more than the duck, she's a witch. That's our fucking substance system. Like, I was like, that's how we schedule drugs. <laughs> like, I mean, it's ridiculous. It it doesn't fucking equate. But here's the thing too, and it, this is my own philosophy. So not everybody has to look at it that way. But us being that biochemical machine, if we're not rooted in our emotions, if we're looking at fact. These drugs have no inherent morality. They, they're not good or bad. They are tools. And, you know, uh, I'm stealing it from Joe Rogan here, but I want to say he said before, it's like a hammer. You can build a house with a hammer, or you can hit yourself in the foot. You can hit other people with a hammer. The hammer's not fucking bad. There's different ways to use the hammer. People are using ketamine to, st- to stick up for the drug itself because we made it the bad boy in the corner. Uh, people are using it to fight PTSD, to give people spiritual experiences. And in the use for skydiving, it's amazing for people because they get to forget that horrible moment where their femur exploded and they get to go to a happy place. 
Uh, it's a disassociative and sh shit, they might even have a spiritual experience out of it. My friend, uh, I won't drop his name because I don't know if he wants to share, uh, he broke both of his femurs landing in a trash can on a skydiving uh, jump. Actually really funny when he showed me the video, <laughs> even on crutches. And uh, he was not ever a drug user and he was like, not only did it help tremendously, he was like, he's like, but I had a really powerful experience in that garbage can, which was funny. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the drugs themselves have no inherent morality. And I think sometimes we think about people who misuse the drugs and that's how we value how bad that drug is. You ha when I say cocaine, you have an image in your head of someone who does cocaine. When I say heroin, you have an image, the movie portrayal portrayal or the use that you've seen but at the end of the day we use very similar chemical compounds and we've also used heroin medically prior i mean we use morphine that a lot of these drugs are slightly different co compounds that do the exact same thing to your body and we'll call one medicine and call the other a drug uh there's they're tools they're tools and you have to be educated and you have to be careful and that's what the scheduling is supposed to do but it's like the work's not consistent when you have cannabis on your number one. And it's also, once again, just running it back, people in prison, non-violent crimes, still for cannabis. 29 states, I do believe, give or take, I think it's 29 states in the beginning of March were like, this is an essential business. That's more than half of our states are going, it's a Schedule One drug, no accepted medical use, but how do all these states have medical marijuana and some have recreational? It's... uh. And then we go, it's essential. We're shutting down small business, but keep the weed, man. <laughs> uh, alcohol stores stayed open too, which I thought was, uh, I was incredibly grateful for. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, you brought up uh, Joe's Rogan, uh, Joe Rogan's uh, hammer analogy, and that reminded me, uh, Ben Shapiro wrote in his uh, The Right Side of History book, uh, facts do not determine, sorry, let me let me do this correctly, quote, uh, facts do not determine values, a tree is not good or bad, it's just a tree, end quote. It, so it, same thing, there's, there's no morality attached to it, it is what it is, it does what it does, and whether it's in the hands of, you know, somebody that's going to use it for benefit, or use it for abuse, I yeah. guess would be the best word to, to put there, but it, it Sorry that your the the Rogan thing just really brought up my. Uh, I remember he he said something very similar to that. So going back to the cannabis thing though, let's look at the Schaefer Commission. Okay. Are you familiar with the Schaefer Commission? I'm not. 1972. Maybe I do, and I don't know the name. Okay. So uh, so the Controlled Substance Act comes out in 1970 and it establishes this thing. And Nixon, uh, there there is a a push to say, hey, weed is not not a thing, right? There's a whole lot of politics behind the whole weed going on to. Uh, going on to the schedule because of where the country was politically at the time. So there is this whole commission called the Schaefer Commission convened in uh, March 22nd of 1972, and they argued that marijuana was not a threat and should be decriminalized. 1972, this is happening. Uh, so this is uh, right out of the right out of the the commission's report, and it's kind of long, so bear with me. Uh, just so you can get a, a better picture. So, quote, the commission believes that three interrelated factors have fostered the definition of marijuana as a major national problem. First, the illegal behavior is highly visible to all segments of our society. Second, the use of the drug is perceived to threaten the health and morality, not only of the individual, 
but of society itself. Third, and most important, the drug has evolved in the late 60s and early 70s as a symbol of wider social conflicts and public issues. This is the tie-in to the Vietnam War. So so it, it's basically it's saying, hey, this went Schedule 1 because, uh, first off, it's everybody's doing it. Yeah, It's highly visible, which means... It, it has no social boundary as far as like class goes. So upper class, middle class, lower class, everybody's doing it. Two, uh, it's, it's perceived, right? It's not quantified. And that's what I thought was really, really interesting is that it was perceived as a threat to health and morality. So here's this word again, right? We're worried about morality, well, how do you define morality and how do you put a legal definition on morality? And then how do you hold an entire country to that definition of morality? Because morality is so unique to not only um, cultures and societies, but even individuals. You know, uh, your moral base is going to be completely different from my moral base. We may share a whole lot of that foundation, but we have individual bricks that are. Yeah. unique to us you know what i mean and and so that was found that that morality word really kind of caught myself and then the fact that they associate the cannabis specifically to the political unrest well if there wasn't any weed we wouldn't have protesters yeah. right everybody would love the fact that we're fighting in vietnam uh, and you know there wouldn't be any you know shenanigans going on so, go ahead no no I, and i'm glad you said that exactly because you, if you just read it, it paints this picture that you're worried about the health of the the American as an individual, or you know what's going to happen to the to the country because of people just going insane or acting up, you know. But not even just the cannabis, but you know that was that whole era where I think people were more worried about this anti-war culture that was growing. Here's this music, free love, drop acid, not bombs, smoke marijuana burn some incense, yoga culture, and it's blowing up in America. And soldiers are turning away from the army, going AWOL, and they're joining it. I mean, how many, you, you look at Woodstock and you got all these famous pictures where there's guys with unbloused tops and, you know, bandanas on and they're getting after it. You know, they look like deadheads everywhere. And uh, it's, I think that is the biggest motivation to throw everything in schedule one. The timing was perfect. It's, it was the biggest way to fight this counterculture that arises that goes, hey, we don't have to fight if we don't want to. We can be the majority. You know, we can come together. And it was working in some ways, at least enough that people said, how do we stop it? Uh, do we tear gas everybody? Do we beat them with batons? Uh, or do we find a back door in? Does everything become, everything that they do, recreationally become the worst thing ever and now we have a reason to lock you in cages yeah and it, it, to read the whole thing and i i read the whole thing and i'll, I'll spare you it's it, it it's forever long um but it's really amazing and, and they go into a lot of medical definitions and uh, they they really present a case that says this is good to go and it talks about uh one of the sections talks about drug use in a free society uh, and so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that to you and get your thoughts on that. So, quote, drugs in a free society. 
A free society seeks to provide conditions in which each of its members may develop his or her potentialities to the fullest extent. A premium is placed on individual choice in seeking self-fulfillment. This priority depends upon the capacity of free citizens not to abuse their freedom and upon their willingness to act responsibly towards others and towards the society as a whole. Responsible behavior, though an individual choice, is both the guarantor and objective of a free society. Drugs should be the servants, not the masters. So here is this picture of America being this this, this free society, um, and and they're they're kind of putting on display here uh, the fact that it's not really free because if it was, we should let these people decide. Um, you know, is this? Is this a thing? And let you know, hey, people are going to make bad choices, whether it's you know legal or not legal. Let's let's make sure that they're you know let's allow them the freedom to choose to be assholes or not. You know, yeah. um, and and the drugs should be the servants, not the masters. They understood, I think, at the time that there was a a, a to use their word a a servant esque character or quality to to cannabis that was being shut off because of of what was happening uh politically in the nation yeah Uh, it's i i have a pretty libertarian stance uh for the most part no yeah so so at least with me you know i look at it and and i don't expect anybody necessarily agree but i'm i'm pretty pro-drug uh, but my total attitude toward it is that laws should be there to protect citizens from other citizens, you know, not from themselves. I don't like seatbelt. I don't like helmet laws. If you need to be told to put your helmet on on a motorcycle, th- th- there shouldn't be a ticketing. Who cares? Do you, bro? I skydive for a living, though, and I joined the Army, though. So uh, maybe my risk-reward system is a little bit different, even though the percentages are actually pretty safe sport we do. But um, I I think that high uh, or really effective reactions to putting other people at risk is where we should focus. That's what makes sense to me. Let people do what they want. And I know a lot of people that's scary because they go, well, people just start doing heroin and this and that. And I'm like, I'm telling you, you've got somebody in your family who has legal heroin. They have legal methamphetamine in their medicine cabinet. People just don't understand what chemicals are. They only know what the TV, what the portrayal of the street drug is. It's safer when it's not off the drugs. It just makes sense. You know, the, the, the war on drugs is just, it's, been just throwing our money down the drain <laughs> where i mean we don't have we have issues with prescribed prescribed drugs but it's a whole different argument but my, my entire attitude toward it is yeah if we're in a free america in a free land and you can do what you want to your body you know you know, and we have a lot of talks about what we can do to our body and other people's bodies even recently in america uh but you, you can't take in certain substances if you're risking no one else's life, I see no issue. Uh, I mean, like I said, it's a seatbelt or a helmet. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, if, if you're banging heroin and you're using that tool improperly, maybe I'm a little bit of an asshole, but I don't think it's anyone's job or anybody's tax money's job to stop you from abusing something. 
that clearly has proper use. <laughs> yes, but. Yeah. Right? Um, in order, I think, for that to happen, though, we would have to change uh, some of the societal uh, programs that we have. Yeah. Right? So we, and we would have to, and, and to shut those off would make us very mean. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it would make us very uh, insensitive to to people. You know, because addiction is a terrible, terrible thing, and there's there's programs that are government funded to help people uh, break that, and or to try to help them break that. So to we would have to shut those off. And what is the second and third order effect? Those people just die, right? Um, are we okay with that? You know, and, and to, to come up to a, you can never come up to a collective answer for that question because nobody would be, I mean, and we're, we're seeing this with, you know, the current COVID stuff that we're, we're dealing with, you know, one death is too many. Well, that's, that's stupid. <laughs> come on, come on, come on. We got, let's work through this. This is, this is a bug. It's going to kill people. It's just, it's this nature, but the, this, you know what I mean? Is you would have those same thinkers. I guess that that's where the, the connection I'm trying to make where, you know, one overdose is too many and we, we can protect them and we can save them and we can rehabilitate them. And a lot of cases that's very true. And we've got some very dear friends of ours in Colorado, uh, Dave and Marlis who, uh, Marlis works in a rehab center and she does yeoman's work. Uh, uh just some of, uh, the, the stories without names. Yeah. I have to disclose that no names, um, of, of the cases that she has handled are terrifying, absolutely terrifying. You know, so do we do we shut that off and do we let those those horrors play out? And what does that look like? Well, I think sometimes if if we're not just locking people up for cannabis and paying for them to live in a prison cell, more money can go into rehabilitation. And if we're not paying officers to fight drug wars that are just they're a joke. It's it's a shadow war. You know, you're you're fighting something that's going to be there no matter what. Now it's dirtier. Now it's black market. Uh, and rehabilitation needs adjustment anyway. I, I think you take a lot of that money and you can put into better rehabilitation programs. Um, you might know by talking to your friend uh, or maybe even some of the conversations. Uh, we have some big issues with how we do rehabilitation anyway. Listen to a great podcast. Wish I could remember the dude's name, but it's instantly what I think of. Uh, where he talked about there's this entire economy around being in a rehabilitation uh, program where people would go back and forth in between Florida and California. He worked in Florida, and he started doing um, rehabilitation on the side with cannabis and quit his job because he thought what they were doing was so disgusting. And he started trying to use other like plant medicines because he really just cared about people. So he kind of did this illegal modern shamanism type thing. But he was saying... and I don't know the exact dates, but there's a certain amount of time you can stay in these rehabilitation locations. And they will give you prescriptions at smaller doses of the legal version of the drug that you're addicted to. So they'll give you methadone. Methadone, yeah. That's what so now you can go sell that on the street. They're giving it to you. That's taxpayers paid. You get to stay in this really nice place where people are similar to you. They share stories with you. You get fed. You have a bed. And he said people would live off of flying to California and staying there and then flying to Cal- uh, Florida and doing that. And they were living on those drugs by either reselling them or doing them, melting them down. What 
what have you. Uh, it, there's corruption there. I'm sure there's amazing things. There's no doubt in my mind. But at least for that one individual in his story, he said, I kept seeing people that I care about and I get to know. And from the outside, I thought I was helping for a long time. And then I notice they're living on us. They talk to me. We make big promises about change in their life. They get a prescription of more of the drug they're addicted to. And then we kick them out of the door at the certain date. And they can come back like six months later. But if they move state, you know, they can go stay somewhere else. And now there's this rubber band effect where all the people who care about you are at the really nice resort who keep giving you the drug that you have an issue with. It's just a different chemical compound, slightly adjusted, you know? <laughs> so it's, there's, there's room for adjustment. I don't have all the answers. I'm not the expert, but I don't think it, if, if you look into that, it's, it's like, well, are, are we doing the best thing for the people? Are we doing the best thing for big pharmaceutical companies? Are we doing the best thing for government employees? Are we really helping the American people? Or do we have a job and a system where the money flows from the government and right back into big business, big pharmaceuticals, into employees who really do care? You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, what's the right answer? I don't know. But is the right answer giving them the legal version of their drug? <laughs> that's still illegal without a prescription. Uh, I don't know. You want to wean people off. There's science there. But sometimes maybe there's other answers. And I don't know what all those programs look like. But I know we waste a lot of money on the drug war. And I know people are locked up for cannabis. You know what I mean? And I know 29 states are, give or take, it's essential business and it's completely legal. So, so that, let's, that's kind of serious to me because I feel the same person who's allowed to run their business in this strange time in America, in the world, there are other people sitting in a jail cell today because they sold that thing or had a lot of it in their car. <laughs> and that, that's kind of, that's going to, you know, traverse us into, uh, you know, so here is this, this federal mandate, right? But now we're seeing all these states that are saying, no, we're good, right? Uh, right off the get-go, um, you know, Seattle, uh, Colorado, uh, I think those were the first ones. Massachusetts, I think New York. I don't know if, if New York finalized theirs or not. But the states are now, it's it's legal. Which, which blows my mind that the state can say... You're good. Open up stores, sell it. Freaking, you know, you can walk into a weed shop and buy your favorite flavor, just like a booze store, you know. Yeah. Um, and but federally, it is still shut off. So it in different places. And you and I talked about this last time you were on the show. Was uh, we were talking about sin politics. Yeah. And um, and and we talked about that that weird federal rule you know what i mean um where literally i can stand in this grass uh in this yard right and smoke a doobie but the moment i step off that grass uh it's because it's a there's there's federal land right there i'm now going to prison for 10 years yeah. you know and that's it's so confusing and and the push to make it 
legit across the board. And there is where I, I see another fantastic parallel to taboos. You know, during uh, leading up to prohibition, prohibition, and then the the aftermath, and looking at you know there are still there's no more dry states. Uh, all the states have given it over to you know their their local county choice, but there's plenty of dry counties. Yeah, like all the way all the way across 139 dry counties. I think last time I, I checked, which was months ago, so that might be different now, especially <laughs> post pandemic. <laughs> Everybody's drinking now, but um. Oh, yeah. Uh, or mid pandemic, depending upon where we are, not really sure. But uh, hindsight will be twenty twenty. Always, always. We'll <laughs> yeah, know. you said we'll it know. did there. Did it? Uh, uh, <laughs> fuck this year. Oh, fuck this year. Let me play a little devil's advocate here, though. I like that. Yeah. So, so I love America, and I'm not mad that states would make decisions separate from federal decisions. That's what we're here for, right? You know, I love the United States. Uh, I do not like the state of New York. I'm in the Army. I don't like the rules here when it comes to guns. I like my guns. I've got. I've only got a handful of strong opinions. I'm pro-drug and pro-gun. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I've got, I've got some strong ones uh, here and there. But I find nothing wrong with the states that want to play their social experiments you know like we don't want this and this is what we want i mean that's why we are the united states that we all fall under one flag and agree to disagree it's what's beautiful is that you can hate california you can hate their laws and you don't fucking have to go unless you're a federal employee and you're told to (laughs) or unless money calls you there you know and and i find that beautiful because i know where i want to retire i know what i want to do with my freedoms when i'm done with the army but uh I just had to say that because it's upsetting to ride across state lines with your guns and your permits don't always align and this and that. It's annoying and you have to make plans. But when that's upsetting me, I go, yeah, that's cool. That's cool, though, because these states, like, we don't all have to agree. What's disturbing to me is that when the majority of the states and the science says that there's medical use for cannabis— or there's medical use for these other drugs because I've got a little information about some of the other Schedule ones. When the science is there and we're getting away from the opinion, the emotion, the morality, this made-up shit that got it all put in Schedule One in the first place, that's where I go, okay, look, we, know, we have the science. Google benefits of marijuana. You can read research on marijuana like all day. There's plenty of stuff there. We know what CBD does. We know how it stops seizures. We know a lot of people benefiting. So why is it still Schedule 1? I have nothing wrong with different states going, no. Because, I mean, I hate when I go down to Alabama and we've had that thought where I couldn't buy beer on Sunday. It pisses me off. But I'm like, but that's what freedom looks like. The people of this area want that. So good. That's what they should have. They should have to wait until Monday morning to buy their beer. <laughs> or they have to buy in stockpile Saturday. Means, yeah, I was going to say, it means you didn't buy enough on Saturday, loser. What's yeah. wrong with and you? That's what everybody actually does. But I don't, it seems silly to me, but I get it and I love America for it. But for the federal government not to adjust fire on something that's so blatantly fact, I'm not even saying get cannabis off the schedules. But by their own definition, it's not Schedule 1. It's proven. Why the fuck is it there? You know what I mean? I, and same with MDMA. 
you know MDMA uh, that's the 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 actual term it's the the love drug right it's ecstasy yeah, yeah. so right now i i want to say they're either in phase 3 or they're done with phase 3 with uh there's a maps it's a maps uh, i won't give you the acronym cuz i'll destroy it uh, but uh give us a rough not word for word, but what is it roughly? Psychedelic studies, something. It's like a multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies, something like that. Okay. Uh, it's it's uh, started by Rick Doblin. Rick Doblin uh, was deeply involved with psychedelics early before the Schedule One happened. And uh, do you have years time frame? I don't. Okay. So he, uh, so his his involvement and the research that was happening with both LSD, MDMA. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of it, especially for depression. And if you go to the MAPS website, you start seeing that now that they had to go through leaps and bounds, but he believed in the drug. He was like, this is the best antidepressant, best fighter of post-traumatic stress disorder that we have. And we locked it in a box. We called it a bad drug, you know, because people were doing ecstasy and they're using it improperly. They're using the tool differently. I want to help people. So he has this huge fight and he gets it approved that he can start using it and the research is phenomenal they're using veterans they're using people that have had sexual abuse happen to them and the not only the numbers of right after uh sessions but uh, you know years later they're seeing that it's the highest percentage of bounce back from ptsd and depression like hands down for just talking numbers you know, you don't have to like the drug. You don't want to have it. You don't have to want it to be recreational. But why is MDMA Schedule 1? If it has medical use. If by definition. By no, definition, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's no medical use for this. Is it? Is there potential for harm? Yeah. People die at festivals every year because MDMA will make you party and feel love and touch on people and feel energetic. And then they don't stay hydrated because they're outside in a festival dancing way more than they've ever danced. <laughs> they probably don't even really do anything physical, but now they are the love machine. And then they, they and, and I feel horrible because I, I went to a, a festival with one of our old friends. Uh, <laughs> and it was, for, I've never been to an EDM festival for that. I don't like techno music really, just honestly. And we went and had a blast. And then we found out when we left that a couple people died that weekend and very sad. They were young. I think it was a couple of teenagers. And I'm like, well, they probably just went real hard. I don't know if there was drug involvement, but a lot of people, you know, they come out and they're not staying hydrated. Something we learned in the army, but they've also probably weren't really that physical, you know? It's like, <laughs> did they play sports? Do they do these things? And now they're partying hard. Add MDMA. Now you're only feeling the good feelings. All your body's warnings aren't there. Does that make MDMA bad? No, it's a tool with the best potential for fighting depression and PTSD. And we threw it in Schedule 1. We deny the science. The science that was already there that now Rick Doblin's picked back up. So, dude. So, it, is, is it the drug that's killing people or is it the dehydration? <laughs> so, that's, there's that, that, you know, the, the question that, that matters. Um, because, again, we associate it. Well, they were taking this and they, you know, it, it caused them to do this. Well, hold on. Uh, had they, had they not, uh, had they drank, you know, it, uh, had they consumed water, would they still be alive? And we, we have this conversation a lot in the, the parachute world, um, 
because people associate accidents and and fatalities with you know with the the first thing they look at is failure of the parachute system gear fear yeah so uh but it wasn't a parachute failure it was a training failure and it's really hard to to put that on you know somebody and that's it's it's not the parachute's fault we want it to be something's fault um, so, and, and drug, you know, drugs are bad, right? So we try to point the finger and we try to put our finger down on, you know, that, that drug saying, hey, oh, this drug was responsible for it. No. Um, the fact that they didn't consume water for over 24 hours and danced for 19 of those 24 hours in the desert in 110 degree heat. That's why they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> People try to hike Death Valley all the time, and they don't make it. Um, we had a uh, a mildly rigid, <clears throat> a mildly religious experience trying to hike a a, a hill in Arizona once, um, yeah. and we didn't bring enough water. and uh, And there were some folks that uh, uh, you know we came back and they got they got IVs and and they were good to go. Thankfully. Can uh, I say the renaming of that mountain? <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, it became Broke Burnt Mountain, which is <laughs> hilarious. That's hilarious because I wasn't even there at that unit at the time, and we continued to do that. Uh, it was like, this year's Broke Burnt Mountain. <laughs> so you never got to live it down. Man almost died on the side of a mountain. We're like, oh, it's Broke Burnt Mountain now, <laughs> which is just excellent. It rolls off the it was It's excellent. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's a story in of itself and and I'll I'll maybe think about telling it later but uh yeah that's that was a that was an adventure but it you know what I mean it, it's <laughs> it it the dehydration killed them yeah it wasn't it wasn't the the narcotics um the fact that the person didn't take the appropriate action right that the parachute didn't parachute worked as intended they didn't take the appropriate action to make the parachute save their life you know what I mean and that's where it's it, it gets really frustrating because we want to make it a thing's fault, not the person's fault. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I'll play devil's advocate here, too. I don't know the information, but I want to say that you can overdose on MDMA. I don't know, but I, I think you can. But even going back to how we criminalize things, cannabis, uh, nobody's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, somebody finds it, but nobody's ever died just from cannabis. They had other drugs in their system. Every death that ever had any relation to cannabis, other drugs in their system. Uh, I think they did some sort of study, and the amount of marijuana you would have to smoke, you would die from not having enough oxygen if you were in that room. And I mean, you don't know if you're smoking it. And then I'm pretty sure you could flood your body with THC through other means uh, that aren't smoking. And it, I, I forget the proportion to body weight. Uh, there's there's some science there, uh, but insane. You know, it's like, it's like it's like it's not going to kill you. It's not going to kill you. Schedule one, but. You know, that, that's not even necessarily in the definition, but it's just such a, it's a funny thing. <laughs> so I, I don't think I, I closed the loop on the Schaefer uh, Act or the, the Schaefer, um, uh, whatchamacallit, the report, um, commission, the Schaefer Commission. Jesus, there we go. Uh, so so they, they, they close out, they, they have all these findings, they have the science, they have all the freaking, everything saying that this is not a thing. Uh, and Nixon's like, nah, fam, it's bad, and, and says no. Like, totally disregards. You know, two years these guys um, went through the the scientific side of it, the the med- you know, medicinal side of it, and all got all this stuff together. And it's really fascinating. It's it, there's a lot there, and they go through so much in depth. And their the findings in the report back was really cool. 
to read. Uh, and now I can, I can only imagine with the advances that we've made since the seventies in science and medicine and all that stuff, if they were to go back and, and look again, I, I think there's a real chance we're a little distracted right now with some other things going on. So I think that's probably a back burner issue, but, but maybe not. And maybe that'll be, you know, maybe it'll be the, the, the Schaefer commission 2.0 that brings about the acceptance, um, federally, you know, uh, you know, once all the states are like, hey, yeah, we're doing this. Yeah. And then the federal government's like, well, okay, cool, we're doing this, you know. And and then they tax it, and then they make money. And and that's those states that are, uh, I know Colorado specifically, you know, they tax the shit out of it, but all that tax money goes into the schools. Yeah, kick it win-win. Yeah, and so we're, we're funding education. There's And again, there's people that have that moral, you know, freaking disconnect where they're like, uh, I don't want my kid going to school if it's funded by drugs. Bitch, shut the fuck up. <laughs> the put, enti- the put entire country's funded on war. They're not, <laughs> right? It, it's not like they're opening up their math book saying, this book is sponsored by weed. Right? You know what I mean? It's not there. That'd be pretty cool, though. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of those implied things, right? Um, but y- 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 your kid has an opportunity to get a much better education because it's funded. You know? And that's where, like, if we, if it, we throw money at it, we can... We can hire good teachers, right? We can hire people that actually give a shit uh, because we can offer them a comparable competitive wage. We, we supply, you know, um, all of the, the things that are needed to further that education, the technology, the, the books, the supplies, the, you know what I mean? We get all that shit. It buys the instruments. It buys the sporting equipment. It does all these things, right? We're not putting little fucking green leaves on everything, right? <laughs> so put that shit away, right? Um, and allow that to happen. And I think there's there's so much uh, benefit there. Now, uh, you'll see a, a price increase, right, if that happens because, yeah, like, cigarettes, you know what I mean? Um, uh, state taxes are, are varied, and alcohol, for that matter, as well. Whiskey is, a, you know, it, it's taxed by state, and some states tax it higher, so... This bottle of booze that's going to cost me twenty dollars in Alabama is going to cost me fucking sixty dollars here in New York. Um, but that's yeah, that's kind of just how it goes. But you know, hopefully that we see that, and hopefully there's that uh, that connection, and and we have a government that is a little bit more receptive to the Schaefer Commission. And it was it was really interesting to to read Nixon's response, how he just legit was like, oh. Thanks. Next, you know, and just totally turned off. It was it was crazy. Um, he totally dismissed uh, the science and the doctors, and, and now here it, it still says. I, I have to I have to connect the dots just because this is funny, and it instantly gave me a little grin when you said, "Hey, we're not going to put uh, we're not going to put little green leaves on all the books because it's funded by marijuana." I, I just have to run it back that for the longest time we used cannabis hemp to make all of our books and we wrote the constitution on hemp, uh, it would actually be much cheaper to make our books that way. <laughs> so, so even if the green leaf's not there, uh, if we make it legal and we start mass producing hemp and we don't destroy the rainforest, <laughs> and we, uh, we, we kind of help supplement at least the paper industry, uh, we at the very least would be riding on little green leaves. So, <laughs> so kind of, Kind of, kind of funny. It's, it's a, uh, it's. There's some irony there. <laughs> and I'll, I'll go on a limb to say, as Americans, if we're oblivious to the fact, we're okay with it. 
you know, um, we, we, we tend to be okay with oblivion. It's when we get educated that we get weird, right? And then, and then shit gets uncomfortable and we don't like things. Um, but, you know, so sustainable and, <laughs> and there's that, that crazy balance, you know, um, you have, uh, overly moral, uh, you know, uh, global warming people, right? Who <laughs> are, you know, we need to save the planet. Well, cool. We can save literally a million acres of forest a year if we use weed. No, weed's bad. It's <laughs> no, like, okay. So let's, you know, <laughs> and, and, and answering the question, why? Why is weed bad? And answering that question uh, on an individual level and then, pushing that out to, you know, communal state and national levels and, you know, answering the question, why is it bad and what does it do? And, um, it's, it kind of, kind of interesting. Um, so we're going to roll into, uh, we're going to roll back the clock a little bit, right. And we're going to start talking about some of the, the racial issues that drove the, the country to, uh, add a lot of drugs to the, the naughty list, right? Yeah. So before we do that, let's grab our uh, our next our next whiskey. You ready for, for some more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whiskey, yeah. All right. So this is uh, coming out of the Slain Distillery, which is on the River Boyne. Uh, cool fact, uh, my wife's family lives in uh, Boyne City, Michigan. Uh, sister city, maybe? I don't know. So this is uh, it's an 80 proof. Triple distilled, single pot still. Sorry, triple cast. Uh, virgin seasoned and sherry barrels. I don't know what that means. And it probably doesn't mean much. It's just words on the label. But the bottle looks good. Yeah, it's that nice dark. It's got the raised letters on the side. it's got a screw top there's a some you know some uh, negative connotations to screw top bottles yeah yeah i think those people are dumb yes it makes sense it keeps it closed well it's it's a lid right yeah um and and they're they're doing uh they're, they're doing good work by having it in a black bottle so sunlight doesn't really have the a big of effect So where I was getting a lot of like buttery, creamy notes on that last one, this is a lot more kind of like a, almost like a scotch, like a kind of a, a grassy, earthy. Yeah, I had almost trouble smelling anything, which I've, I'm always, I got allergies and stuff, never can smell, but it was almost like really light, you know? And I would say it tastes that way too, really smooth, subtle. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of barley there. Mm. That's good. I know I say it with almost all the whiskeys. So I'm not a picky man, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Austin actually just introduced me to uh, uh, a UFC Fighters whiskey, Proper Twelve. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, uh, it was a, a little softer on the 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 Irish whiskey side of the house than I I prefer, but uh, but not bad. That would make a badass mixer. Well, it. It blew my mind because I didn't have high hopes for it. I honestly didn't think anything well of it. And even though I'm a big UFC fan, I was like, 
this is probably all making the money on the brand. You know what I mean? This isn't necessarily going to be like some great whiskey. And then I couldn't deny the fact that it was $20 on the shelf. And then I bought it. And then I went back and bought another one. I was like, <laughs> I was like that is cheap. That is good. I like just sipping on it. And I'm like, okay, good job, Connor. Or good job, the people that are doing it for Connor. You know? <laughs> Stop punching old men in the bar when they don't like it. But, like, outside of that, pretty good stuff. <laughs> nice little liquid. <laughs> he, just, he just had to, you know, it just just say it was okay. That's all he had to do. Yeah, it's all right. going to blame the old Irish yeah, man. I'm going to get punched in the face because I'm going to argue this UFC fighter's whiskey is shit. <laughs> so one of the cool things about Irish whiskey and that I, I, I love bourbons. And bourbons is where I, I started my whole whiskey adventure. And um, I, it will forever be um, the the key to my heart but uh getting into irish whiskey is one thing that i have found is they generally are a little bit lighter in proof and uh, you're seeing bourbon kind of go on to this uh this barrel proof adventure right now where everything that comes out is punch you in the face whiskey you know what i mean it is that that 110 that 115 proof that is just like oh, oh. What, is that what that means what does barrel proof mean so barrel proof it, it comes right out of the barrel they don't proof it down with water at all Oh, okay. So I didn't even know they do that. Yeah. So if they get like a really strong whiskey, so you'll buy whiskeys that'll it'll be watered down, essentially. Yeah. So it's okay. it's proofed to, so it, it comes out of the barrel, right? And all so uh, when we're looking at like big stuff, right? Let's big whiskey makers. Let's say Jim Beam. Yeah. Right. So the in in a batch of their Jim Beam white label, there's going to be, let's say for. Uh, you know, just for instance, this isn't an actual number, but let's say there's 1,500 barrels. So what they'll do is they'll take those 1,500 barrels, they'll put them into a vat. The proof of those, because each barrel is is unique, so the proof of each barrel is going to be different. So Uh, when you blend it all together, let's say now it's at, uh, you know, let's say it's at 87.4%. They have to proof that down because Jim Beam White Label is supposed to be 80 proof. So they'll cut it with water. They'll put water in bring that proof down. Um, and that's what you're doing when you add water to whiskey. Like you, when you pour a glass of whiskey and you put a couple drops of water or you put it in an ice cube, it proofs it down. The water then does some really great crazy shit and makes it a lot more aromatic and it kind of opens up a whole bunch of new flavors and stuff. Uh, but when you're looking at making a, a batch of whiskey to have that same profile, that flavor profile, consistently throughout it, they proof it down with uh, with water. And that's what these are done. So, so bourbon's on this like barrel-proof uh, adventure right now and it's awesome and, and there's some really really fantastic bourbons that are coming out but uh, palate fatigue is something I've been experiencing lately where because you can't sit down and drink a lot of barrel proof whiskey without it, it getting a little fucking weird right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah three glasses of of you know 125 proof and you know I'm waking up outside of a church in Parker uh, Colorado so uh, but uh, uh the one thing I, I've really started to appreciate about Irish whiskey is that it's generally on that lighter proof side. So that slow sipping of lighter proof whiskey for longer, yeah, you know, I can enjoy it longer. Yeah, it's, and, fu- it's funny that you got to play that game sometimes. Like depending on what your evening is going to be, you're like, let's not bring that out. I'd like to play some cornhole. I'd like to hang out and listen to music, not get slammered and have to leave. After like, I would like to continue to sip on something delicious. <laughs> that was my my trouble last night. Was you know going to this party? Uh, I wanted to bring some some whiskey to share with everybody, and uh, I'm going through my stuff, and I'm like, nope, that's gonna make people throw up. 
nope, they're going to fall asleep. Nope. Uh, where's, oh, and then, and then I realized that I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm in that barrel proof adventure right along with the, the bourbon. So, um, so yeah, but that's where, uh, again, coming back to Irish whiskey, it's that, that really great flavor, uh, without the, uh, holy shit, you know, uh, I could use to start my car if I had to kind of deal, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I've really enjoyed that. So I'm, I'm, I'm digging the, the Irish whiskeys right now. So, all right, here we go. We're moving back to drugs Uh-oh. or non-whiskey drugs. Let's, there we go. Let's talk about that. All right. So now we're going to go into some, uh, some muddy water here when it comes to, uh, race and laws about substance abuse or substance. Right. So, uh, and like I said earlier, the, the temperance movement, um, you know, uh, had a lot to do with in the turn of the 20th century getting rid of alcohol uh the premise was to keep it from these recently freed slaves from getting drunk and raping white women Hmm. you know uh and it was to keep them morally on the high ground so we want to control their behavior by taking away something that is dangerous to the you know morality of everybody around them so this is a race-specific prohibition no, in part so the so the temperance movement was uh, it was a, a a movement started um, a, a lot of women involved in this uh, to to get people to stop drinking when it kicked off in the eighteen late eighteen thirties uh, into the eighteen fifties it we were drunk as a nation that we were just hammered like wasted hardcore. Uh, we went on a 30 year bender and, uh, nationally <laughs> and, and it came out of that because, you know, the, the backside of drinking six gallons of hardcore liquor a year per person in, in the country, right. Um, is you obviously you're dealing with cirrhosis and liver failure. You're dealing with, uh, domestic abuse because now, you know, they're liquored up and they want to get a little, you know, flirty with mama and mama ain't having it, right? Oh, wait, so, so the alcohol's bad. Uh, it, well, it, that's maybe. It's evil. It's, well, that, that's not my question to answer. <laughs> that's yours. Right, so this is kind of where the temperance movement was. But then in the, you know, now post-Civil War, Reconstruction doesn't go well. We're now uh, moving into the Jim Crow era, and we see this resurgence where prohibition actually took hold as a nation. The temperance movement started freaking rolling heavy. And in the South... Uh, primarily Mississippi was a, a great example of, of their temperance movement, you know, and, and it was, it was racial, you know, we got to keep the booze out of the hands of the, the black guys because they're going to deflower all the white women. Um, and it was total bullshit. Yeah. It was gross. It was disgusting, but we saw the same thing with marijuana. So let's move, you know, we're moving back into that, that drug thing. So, uh, some of the harder drugs, they were looking at taxation so they could control it. But weed was one of those ones that was, uh, pushed into that, that realm, um, because of a lot of, uh, the, the racial connotations that were, were coming around because of that. Yeah, it's all that fear baiting. Like I said, it's like you, you're, you're, you're selling people fear and people will buy fear every time, you know? And, and, you know, that's why, uh, I know we've talked about that quote, especially here recently. Uh, God, who who was it that said it? It's a really common quote, and of course, it's all over Facebook now because everybody's at war. But I do like it. I just like it, which is the uh, if you give up uh, any amount of freedom for 
what is it? Uh, for safety, then you deserve neither. Forget who wrote. Uh, forget who wrote that. Uh, was it Benjamin Franklin? I mean, sorry for my ignorance to everyone, but uh, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> but uh, it's it's that that knee jerk reaction. It, it's like somebody's trying to scare you. You know, whether it's media or a person, do they have an agenda? And have you even asked? You know, what's the agenda? And is the fear real? You know. Is there really somebody out there who's different from you, not part of your group, trying to get you? You know, do we need to do something right now about it? Or is there some facts? And, you know, like, can we look at numbers? Can we look at statistics? Is there something we can do? So, I mean, it it always gets gross, you know? (laughs) And people will feed on fear, you know? You see it. It's like, oh, well, I'm scared. I'll do what the expert told me. Well, is the expert a good person? Are the numbers real? Are you just buying whatever they sell you? And so uh, the great video on YouTube called A Brief of Drug Laws in America. Hmm. And and it, it, it takes you through uh, the drug laws throughout the country in a, a pretty short order, right? So it doesn't it's not like breakdown analysis of each and every phase. But they brought up the you know, the big racial divides. And it's not just, uh, it wasn't just African-Americans. It was the Chinese in California with uh, opium. Um, It's because the the Chinese were getting high and uh, white people were looked on sympathetically. Uh, And so their, their charges and and whatnot were, were significantly less and lower. um, And there was a a huge uh, discrimination. So, you know, they, they started attacking opium in California and, uh, Cocaine was actually one of the bigger ones for African Americans that they kind of they, they kind of took a little harder stance on um, with with cocaine and uh, which which was weird to me. I, I, and they they didn't really go into depth as to why. And they didn't uh, there wasn't a quantification of like numbers. Uh, I'm sure it's there to find, but it, it was it, it blew my mind how. You know, uh, that played a part. That had a that had a say. That had an influence in how the drug laws were shaped in America throughout throughout history. Um, and and is that still prevalent? You know, if we're if we're looking at it today, is that still a thing? Is that still are we still seeing that? Or and is or has the justice system kind of caught up and said, okay, um, you know, we're going to go off of this schedule now. And this was all pre, uh, controlled substance abuse or controlled substance act of 1970. Right. So this was all before then. So was that the correcting document, right. By establishing the schedule and saying, okay, cool. Um, we're no longer going to punish you because you're, an Asian American doing opium in California or you're yeah. an African American doing Coke in Chicago. You know what I mean? We're, we're going to just put it all there and here is schedule punishment, you and know, set parameters and set yeah. parameters. And that was maybe that was one of the purposes to kind of level the playing field there because all of that came about after, you know, post, um, you know, the civil rights act, uh, you know, the, the voting act. And so that the big civil rights movement of the late 1960s kind of came through uh, at that time. So I think I think there may have been some of that influence as well. There was a reason to level the bubbles. Yeah, where it was, a, it maybe not. I, I don't know. I, I didn't I didn't dig too deep into that one. 
um, there was a lot of shit that I was trying to, to look at and get together. And, um, but I, I didn't get a chance to rabbit hole that, but I found that very, very interesting that race paid it, played a big part and the similarities between narcotics, uh, and fear, right. The, the, the racial fears that were around at the time played a big part in, uh, how it was enforced and how laws came about and, uh, restrictive laws that were, uh, bullshit because they were sympathetic to this and not that, you know? Yeah. And, you know, um, and maybe that's a good point. Maybe this is another chance for me to be a little bit more understanding and uh, of what I disagree with, which is how we do all our scheduling. But, uh, it, it, you know, if I'm going to play devil's advocate once again, uh, maybe that it was a good, it was a step in the right direction. It was just a little bit based in ignorance, but we tried to f- base something in fact you know, where we're not just shooting from the hip on our drug laws. It's like, well, here's our guidance, you know? Uh, so, I, so I can give a little bit of respect there. Uh, it's like, we were, it's like, we're trying to be fact-based, but we didn't quite get away from our opinions and our morality and our, you know, cultural or religious upbringing, whatever factor plays into how we, you know, prosecute individuals based on whether we think negatively of them or the drug. So let me ask you this. Um, if the Schaefer Commission does its job and it sells and Nixon buys it and says, you're right, weed's off the table. Are we even talking right now? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if everything else is still scheduled in Schedule 1, because the, still, like I said, whether it's MDMA, whether it's, uh, L, whether it's uh, cannabis, I mean, there's a whole list of drugs that are in Schedule 1 that were being researched prior. Here's a little fun one, too, for uh, for that kind of ties into alcohol. So a little whiskey, a little history, a little bit of drugs. Uh, the co-founder— Now it's a party. <laughs> the, co, the, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, which let me, let me grab some these little notes because I had to write down the dates. I'm never good with dates. So A was founded in 1935. Uh, co-founder Bill Wilson. So uh, the whole 12 steps program, it all started with him and one other individual back in 1935. In August, August 29th, 1956, at the Los Angeles VA hospital, he did his first <coughs> LSD, uh, psych, uh, what's the word when you're with a therapist? Uh, he did a session of LSD with a therapist, you know. Um, this is the same guy who gave LSD to a lot of big names. Uh, one of them being Aldous Huxley. He wrote like a big book, Doors of Perception, about mescaline and the potential there. Uh, but really interesting, he came back, and uh, I like to call it, I, I don't know if I heard it somewhere, so sorry if I stole it from somebody, but I always say, you know, when somebody talks about 12-step program, like, what about the 13th step? People are like, what do you mean? It's like, well, you know, he went back and he was like, LSD gave him a spiritual experience. And I don't know the 12 steps. Never been AA. <laughs> but uh, we have a Google machine. <laughs> but uh, but uh, he, he said one of the biggest and hardest parts and most important parts of the 12-step program was to have a religious or spiritual experience to find a higher power, something outside of yourself that made you want to better your life. He said that LSD helped him with uh, uh, depression that he had dealt with his entire life more than anything else ever had. And he saw the ability to have a spiritual experience to communicate with 
some sort of higher power. And he got a lot of backlash from the community. And he even admitted, he goes, he, he didn't want people to use other substances to get off their substance, you know? He, he, he didn't want you to, he didn't like the idea of someone using LSD to get off of alcohol. But he was like, this is powerful. There's something here. So really, really interesting. And he got a lot of backlash from the AA community, you know, because he came out and he's like, LSD might help you with that part. Might be a really good thing instead of the coffee and cigarettes in the back of the room. You know, <laughs> it might be the better way to get off that, uh, that, uh, <laughs> Yeah, sure, because uh, instead of drinking booze at the bar, you're going to be hiding in the closet because of all the fucking dragons that are flying around the kitchen, right? Well, well, one of the things that comes with that, you know, I'll, let me let me stick up for LSD. Uh, the, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, well, Albert Hoffman uh, created LSD, lived to be 101, and did it a lot. He wrote a whole book, uh, LSD, My Problem Child, or, or LSD, The Problem Child. Either one. Uh, but a lot of research came out about LSD, especially after all of that research. Uh, and interesting enough, uh, when you look into it, VA Hospital, I don't know if you noticed the, the date that I dropped there. It was in the middle of the MK Ultra era that we were doing LSD sessions with people in VA hospitals. Um, he very well might have been sitting there as part of data collection for mk ultra can't say but a lot of people played part uh, a lot of bad people played part as well charles manson had a lot of ties with the mk ultra uh there was also some ties with him what's, what's your source him and his therapist and uh, <laughs> the unabomber uh there, there there's a there's a there's an entire book uh god i, I need to look it up and uh but it's the guy i was telling you about joe rogan podcast again he did 20 years research, quit his job. Uh, uh, I think it's called Chaos. Uh, and then it's got some subwords about uh, LSD, Charles Manson, MKUltra. Uh, but I actually just downloaded it on Audible. I'm going to be getting into that very soon. But uh, the MKUltra goes deep, deep, deep. Uh, there's a lot of ties in between different therapists, a lot of army colonels who became civilians, got lots of funding. Uh, there's even a famous story, which is really funny, uh, where they apparently killed an elephant. <laughs> they were giving him so much LSD, but they actually think it was uh, other drugs that they pumped into it, trying to save the LSD when it started having seizures. It was uh, Louise Jolly, Jollyon West. Uh, they, they called him Jolly. And uh, he was an Air Force doctor. He uh, reached the rank of colonel, uh, then started being really deep into all of this... Uh, therapy would suspect people that had ties with MK Ultra, uh, but the most famous being it's not a bullshit story they killed an elephant <laughs> i mean the, the man had full reign from the government retired colonel and they were like hey play with lsd on people play with lsd on i mean the man requested an elephant got an elephant and, and you me and you both government employees could appreciate the level of power you have if you're like i would like this many crates of LSD, and I need an elephant. Don't ask me. I'm working. <laughs> but they, they weren't listed as LSD and an elephant. They were listed as like uh, a hammer and uh, you know uh, uh, <laughs> wall receptacle covering or something. So the book you're talking about was written by Tom O'Neill. It's Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the '60s. Yeah, yeah. 
Right on. So I, I'm I'm anxious to hear. Yeah, it. when when you come out of that, um, uh, unfortunately, I think I'll probably be uh, on my way to to somewhere else at that time. But uh, we'll definitely have to reach back and close the loop on that because that I'm I'm super intrigued with the connection with Charles Manson, MK Ultra, and you know what I mean. Like there's like that's that's pre that's pretty weird. I, I know you and I had talked about it a couple times in the office about. Uh, uh, you were sharing the the kind of the backstory. Yeah, some of the stuff that he talked about on the podcast because yeah. it's interesting. He was a he's a journalist. He was supposed to write this one little article for like a for the news, and then he got obsessed, and he just kept pushing it back, pushing back the guideline. He lost his job, and twenty years later, he's like, "Look, this is a web of shit." There were so many people involved. You know, I was supposed to write this little cover story on Charles Manson, and I did too good of a job. You know, and he just kept finding interest and curiosity around every corner. At least how he sells it. I'll tell you how the book was. But, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the MK Ultra gets real muddied. I'm not an expert on it, but it is interesting that, you know, we've got famous authors, the person who wrote a, a One Fly Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, these are all individuals that were involved in some way, shape, or form with, you know, government-funded psychedelic studies, whether it was MKUltra or not, we don't know. But there's a lot of dates, times, and names that bounce around in some of these places where you're like, he was in that hospital and that hospital on the other side of the country. He was the therapist for who? All these different people? You see some weird connections. But there was – I did a show with uh, uh, Robbie from uh, the Out of the Blank podcast, uh, which you should check out. He's a great dude, awesome conversationalist, love talking to him. Uh, Always an adventure with him uh, because he – he is like the 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 dog in uh, the movie Home. Have you seen that? I haven't. You know where all of a sudden he's like da 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 squirrel. Like it's, it, <laughs> I love it. Um, but but he's so educated. And um, we were talking about the history of radio, and he also he mentioned one of the golden voices of radio in the uh, in the fifties was married to like this lady. I forget her name. Um, was married to this guy uh, involved in the MK Ultra program and. She was like a, a an un uh, unknowing test subject. Some really uh, like he, you know, he uh, he opened a, a kind of a can of worms that uh, we 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 legit ran out of time to <laughs> to talk about. I think we he and I spent a, a lot of time talking about that, which was which was really cool to kind of tie that back into. I mean, like the facets, like you were talking about the the web that this guy has found of how deep that goes and how how far out the reach was in all these different places. And that was that was pretty interesting. So let's. We're, we're going to roll into our, our last topic. Okay. All right. Uh, do you need a recharge? Yeah, I'll take one. What, which one, sure. what do you want? Uh, dealer's choice. Oh, dealer's choice. Oh, man. This is, we started with the patties, right? Yeah. Let me go back to patties. All right. We'll do a full well, Here, circle. I'll let you. Yeah, no, Thank I'll, you I'll let much. you uh, go on your own there. It's the Ouroboros of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna reach back and grab some of that that Glendalog that 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 breathed really nicely. Sure. We we danced around uh, the subject of alcohol and prohibition, mm-hmm. right? Looking what we know of of prohibition, you know, uh, changed our constitution was a, a period of uh, uh, let's see what 10, 13 years, fifteen years. Obviously, there were lessons learned by the government mm-hmm. during that time. They made adjustments 
was the Controlled Substance Act of 1970, in your opinion, a way to enact prohibition on narcotics without changing the Constitution to do so? Hmm. That's a hard one to unpack. I don't know. You know, to me, the motivators are all over the place. Fear being one of the biggest. I, I think we were trying to take away essentially freedoms, uh, mostly because of that the Vietnam era, because of that that counterculture. Um, so I guess in part, yeah, a little bit. You know, uh, it, it was it was a way to shift an entire culture. Uh, in a way that at least appeared to be uh, more logical on paper, uh, you could you could sell it better than maybe the full prohibition, the slamming of the hammer. You know, it it was a little different. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's not the best answer, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I it's I, th- I think we unpacked it a little bit. It's, I think it was it was mostly. You know, it, it was that fear of where the culture of the United States was going and how do we make these people stop pushing this agenda? We, we, fight, we have to find a way to lock them up, you know? And, and that's really interesting that, that you, you make that association because I, I'm a firm believer that uh, you cannot adjust culture with legislation. Yeah. You cannot write a law to make people change um, attitudes, beliefs, and feelings. Yeah. Right. Um, because it, 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 if you do this, this, and this, you're going to go to jail. Well, okay. That doesn't change how they feel internally. Right. And if we're, if we want to do that, that cultural impact, that cultural change, um, there, there can be punishments, right. There can be, uh, those things that we, you know, if, if you do this, this bad thing, you're going to get this punishment. And that's, that's a good thing that needs to be there. But to look at a system, you know, just changing legislation isn't going to fix it. You know, so here's the, the the culture is changing. Let me fix it with a piece of paper. You know, let me fix it with punishments. Let me fix it with freaking. You know what I mean? And that's where I think I think as a nation, that's where that's where we need to we we fucked up because we did it with booze, did the same thing. You know, um, we tried to fix uh, the fact that we were drunk all the time <laughs> with with legislation, and it didn't. You know, um, what did it do? We drank more. Yeah. You know, um, and because we are, we are rebellious little shits uh, as a nation (laughs) and that shit, that's how we started. And so to think that we can put down a rule and have that rule provide the change. Well, you, the anti LSD, the anti cannabis people, what they did do well at the government was propaganda and fear. Uh, we did a really good job, whether it was, you know, the, that documentary Reefer Madness, which is hilarious if you check it out now. Uh, we did a good job at telling horror stories. You'll do LSD and you'll think you're orange juice forever, which is a common story that everybody's, that happened to my cousin. It's not true. <laughs> uh, the re- there's no facts there. It's like there's nobody either. There's nobody you can go visit in an insane asylum. And so he did too much LSD. But the story's there. You know, the cannabis stories, they're there. We did a lot of fear telling. And I think that, you know, you can legislate 
you can schedule drugs and you can push people out of the public. You can slow down their spread of ideals because now the festival's not as fun, you know, because the cops are waiting to get you. The, you know, <laughs> the, you know, you, you slow down the way that you know, people are still doing the drugs, but you make it behind closed doors. You give it, you give it where someone has to really know what they're doing or really want to get high. They have to have the knowledge. Because they're afraid. I don't want to be locked up. I don't want to ruin my job. I don't want a a hundred list of different reasons, even as a young man or woman. You know, it's like, I don't want to do that. You know, but the the stories, the fear, you know, it's like, well, then you're going to be a drug addict. You know, the the term gateway drug was always used. Like, well, you're going to smoke that, but then you'll be a prostitute and do heroin later. So. (laughs) I love how prostitution was the first thing. (laughs) So you're going to smoke weed. Then you become a hooker. Then you get it to heroin. (laughs) Well, you're going to have to sell your body for more than marijuana. (laughs) So being a hooker is the gateway to heroin. Son of a bitch. I'm not making enough money. I need to change my profession. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think that, I mean, they did an excellent job at that. Because even when you talk to people about drugs, they will tell you horror stories that they learned in high school or videos they saw or what their parents believe and how they were raised. And... They're so much not fact based. Think about the commercial. Um, it, during our child, well, during my childhood, um, may have happened a couple of years before your childhood, but uh, the fried egg. Yeah, was that a thing? Yeah, did, did yeah, you I see that? that? This is your brain. This is on your drugs. brain, and then this is your brain on drugs. Um, that commercial just made me hungry all the time. I'm like, God, that egg looks so good. I'm I'm so hungry. But no, like, but that that fear, you know, and and that was that was fear monitoring because it didn't specify drugs. Yeah. Right. It didn't say, you know, uh, meth, uh, angel dust, cocaine, crack, whatever. You know what I mean? It was drugs. (laughs) Uh, This is your brain and this is what drugs do to your brain. You know, and now. Right. And (laughs) I get it. It's geared to 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 kind of like shock the kids. And, you know, uh, there's the dare program. Right. And I I think there's a little bit more education there. But that that the whole using fear um, to keep people afraid to, to push them away. Uh, let's let's make them smart. Let's not make them scared. We we did a lot of that. We did a lot of funny ones. I know for like my age, and you probably saw this as well. The flat girl on the couch, the girl who like got yes, the, oh then that there, was creepy as fuck. Then there was the talking dog. That's I'm ashamed of you. You're not the same when you smoke weed. Have you seen that one? No, hilarious. Dude's dog talks to him while he's high on weed. Tells him he's <laughs> bummed out about it. I'm like, who made this commercial? Someone smoking weed. It's a hilarious commercial. And then there's even older ones where I think there's like a. There's somebody buying drugs in the shady alleyway, and the dude's got a trench coat. He turns around, and he's a snake man. And you're like, ooh, he's a drug dealer. <laughs> you know, he's literally a reptilian humanoid. Like, who the fuck made this commercial? <laughs> but they're hilarious. But they weren't. People got scared. People would see that, and they'd go, I don't want to be melted into the couch or have my brain turn into, egg, like, you know, like scrambled eggs. <laughs> but, like, like, but that's not information. You know, you know, it works better popping up numbers of how many people are dying from cannabis and who's addicted. But they didn't have that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it's like so it's made up stories. It's made up stories about people smoking marijuana and raping women. You know, it's 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 bullshit. But it worked. The propaganda definitely, I would say, worked better than any legislation ever could have. And and again, so there there is your cultural change, right? Or or your it didn't change the culture, but there was a definite impact. Right. Uh, not not because somebody wrote a law in D.C., but because somebody put a scary flat girl on a couch. Um, Psychological operations. Yep. 
Yeah, no, and that's you know the the changing of the mindset isn't done by laws; it's done by you know uh, influence. Hopefully, it was done by education. So, do you think we will see? And I think we talked about this last time you we were here, but uh, we're going to go back into it. Do you think we will see the era where uh, they stop prosecuting drug use? Do you think that? we'll we'll see the era of change like that'll happen in our lifetime where they will accept maybe not all of them but they'll accept certain drugs obviously marijuana has already been accepted on the state level uh, so i think it's just a matter of time before that's accepted on the federal level but some of these other you know the will cocaine ever be a legal drug so i think slowly it's already happening i think uh i know there's there's one state where um I think it's like any plant-based psychedelic is now decriminalized. I can't remember what state, but we could research. I know like psilocybin mushrooms, the peyote, like you're not going to get thrown in jail for that. Um, I think we're seeing that move with cannabis. I think Rick Doblin, like we said, with his push, I mean, MDMA being in phase three or past it, uh, he like people are going to see there's medicine there. That's at least going to be medical. I think we're going to see a lot of these schedules. Cannabis was the first one to break the mold. But people are going to keep going back to that list of federal schedules, and they're going to go, this isn't adding up because the science is there. You know, Rick Doblin's doing amazing things with all these plant-based psychedelics that cultures have used forever, and he's using it for medicine, and he's not even trying to necessarily push recreation. He's just like, let's just use the tools at our disposal to help American people, you know? Like, we don't have to use just synthetic drugs and help big pharmaceuticals. You know, we can we can do some natural things. Some of these plants already work pretty well. You know what I mean? As they are. MDMA not being just a natural plant, but you know, there, there's, we're seeing it. I just think it's slow, but I, I think, I think our culture is shifting, especially with cannabis. Cannabis is the, the, the trailblazer. I guess it's a, it's the gateway drug. <laughs> it's, it, I, I, so full disclosure, I've never done it. Yeah. Never, um, I and, and we. I know we talked about this too, but I had I had to join the army to see what it looked like in person for the first time ever. Yeah, was was well. That story's a whole another story. But um, <laughs> and I remember looking at it, going, "What the fuck is that?" And then somebody tells me, "I'm like, oh, I gotta go." Uh, <laughs> Criminals, thugs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you ran away with your hands over your head. I'm, I'm telling you, <laughs> I I am the most rule followingest person there is, uh, and and if if the rules are defined clearly. Now, when the rules are loosely defined, I will I will take liberty with the loosely definitioned uh, rules. Uh, but but if the rules are very clearly defined, this is do not do this, right? I, that that's me, you know. So when I saw that, I'm like, oop, that's against the rules. I'm a rule follower. I gotta go, you know. Uh, but so I've never I've never done it. But I I think in in looking at it and, and talking to you know my, my friends that have done it and do it and uh and it seems the less impactful i mean the worst thing that happens is you get fat because you got to go freaking down a bag of freaking funyuns or some shit you know what i mean i know that's a stereotype that might not be, yeah. be a real thing but um but uh but I, I think that'll be the start, and and I'm I'm not educated on drugs. I'm not at all uh, on narcotics. Uh, you know what I mean? So I, I can't tell you, you know, uh, chemical reductions and 
you know, side effects of all this and that and the other and whatnot. But I, I would venture a guess that a lot of the side effects that we see in some drugs mirror the side effects that a good night of drinking are going to give you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, and the same, you know, uh, long term, you know, uh, abuse. And that's where I, the, the big difference is, I think, uh, use and abuses are two different things. Yeah. Uh, using, you know, I, I use alcohol. I drink. I drink. Um, I don't abuse alcohol. There have been times in my life when I have. Um, and once I recognized the fact that I was abusing it, I had to shut it off for a little while, you know, dry out and freaking reassess myself put on my freaking checks and balances hat and go back, you know? Um, and, and so, so I think that's, I think that the definition of abuse needs to get cleaned up mm-hmm. and, and that might open the doors. I, th- I think it's understanding your baseline. It's going back to that. We're a biochemical machine. It's not, you know, which mental toughness is important. But sometimes we try to mental tough through everything when your diet just needs to be better or you need some more activity. And I'm, you know, I do plenty of bad, you know, stuff. I eat the bad things. I don't always work out amazing. But you, I think, have to have a little bit of self awareness. That's bullshit yeah. because I watch you eat. <laughs> you drink your breakfast, which is green and weird looking. And well, there's there's usually some sort of plant based something. I think you're. My wife's a hippie. The, the, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's understanding your baseline and where your baseline moves. Because if you're putting anything in your body, you're making a slight adjustment to your baseline. You know, we're a chemical machine. We've got these little bars, and we have these rubber band effects. You know, that's what a hangover is, you know, uh, paired with dehydration. Uh, that's what any kind of, you know, all the negative feelings post any drug is you took your baseline and you ramped it the fuck up. And we're this big rubber band. We work on like balance. We're this weird little yin-yang machine, you know? And if you try to stay away from that middle line, you know, your, your highs get higher and your lows get lower. You got to be careful, you know? It's like, I mean, right. but, you know, you can't, you can't live on the mountaintop. <laughs> and, every, and, and that's where it gets dangerous because you use the chemical to live on the mountaintop. Or, you know, or hamburgers or donuts, whatever your thing is, you know? You, you can see when people are abusing what they're putting in their body, it shows up, whether it's on their face, their attitude, their reactions, their stomach, you know, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's like, Oh, that's not ba-. like we literally, you know, and some people don't want to hear it. You know, you can love somebody for their body or whatever and how they look. But when you see someone and they don't look healthy, whether it's too thin, too big, we see something chemically wrong. It's the same way we find attraction that we find, you know, uh, a symmetry in a face. So you can see when there's some issues, even if your parents did some bad things, you know, maybe Alabama stuff, you know. <laughs> I'm from Alabama, <laughs> I can say that. You, you you see when something went wrong. Yeah, I can do that, I'm from there. Okay. <laughs> I've got a web toast, so my, my wife's always like, something might have happened in the past, and I'm like, yeah. So my business. I, I hate that that actually makes sense. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I might have some DNA issues. My mother would kill me if she heard this. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> but you, you, we, we can see it. It makes sense. Nobody has to teach you. You look at somebody, you see unhealthiness. No, nobody, nobody aspires to look sickly or imbalanced, you know? And, and those pictures of people, um, the, the before and after meth pictures, Right there's those those pictures that are circulating. You can find them on the internet everywhere. Um, 
uh, you know, they show a picture of somebody, you know, a mugshot, right? Uh, generally from Florida. Uh, you know, this was this person, uh, you know, their first We're destroying their, the South. Right? <laughs> Florida owns it though. Like they're, you know, uh, I, I can't talk smartly on on Alabama and, and that whole genetic uh, shenanigan we went on right there with you. But uh, but uh, Florida, Florida's crazy. They know it, and that's kind of like their thing. That's their their claim to fame. So, um, but the the pictures of you know their first meth arrest yeah. versus their tenth meth arrest, and and looking at the physical changes that 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 particular substance when abused causes is crazy. Um, and it's, it's frightening. It's, it goes back to that fear thing. Like, man, I don't want to look like the one tooth freaking dude with open sores on his face. Like, yeah, goddamn. Um, but that alone is going to keep me away from that shit. Like, because I, yeah, that guy's scary looking. If I saw that guy on the street, I'd go somewhere else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but all of that to say, you know, I, I, I would like to see, uh, if, if this thing comes to an end, if we are experiencing prohibition, uh, in the the realm of narcotics, uh, they t- they took alcohol, right, and they put a comparison chart, right. So one twelve ounce beer equals one eight ounce glass of wine equals one five or one and a half ounce freaking shot of whiskey or, or or distilled spirits at eighty proof or whatever. You know what I mean? And they 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 put it in proportions, right? So I would love to see them do that. Like one doobie equals one bump of cocaine equals. Yeah you know, a uh, half of slice of LSD or, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? I, and I don't know how any of the dosage works, right? I, I love the slice of LSD. That's yeah. what I'm going to say for now on. Yeah. When, I'm, when I'm shooting up my pots. Yeah. When I'm shooting up my pots, I'll talk about my slices of LSD. It would be perfect. I don't know. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. But, but you know, something like that, it would be cool to see. Um, for them to do to do the science, to do the research, figure out how to test, you know, figure out um, uh, established levels of abuse, yeah. that they they would have to do that, uh, and and just like they do with alcohol, so we have a blood alcohol content. If it's above this, you can't drive a vehicle, and if you drive a vehicle, you get in trouble. Um, you know, to do that same thing. I know uh, Colorado is currently working somehow a test with that. So so there's a there's a driving while impaired. Uh, weed, you know, whatever test, you know, so that's the thing. But that's but cool. the, the funny thing is, is, generally they're not speeding and driving erratically. They're driving five miles an hour down a seventy-five mile an hour zone on the freeway, you know. <laughs> but anyway, still a fucking I, issue. You're yeah. an asshole. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, Stay in the right lane. A good friend of ours named Corey would call that a a, a road tampon. I think. <laughs> that's excellent. Oh, uh, so. It, Right on, and and that kind of that kind of uh, brings us to the close, you know, um, and and let's maybe not answer it, but think about it. If you have a a, a shot at it, g- give me a give me one. Um, so be- before you close it, yeah, I have to say because I would I would feel like it was criminal if I if we did a drug podcast and I didn't tell two of my favorite stories. Yeah, so I got to tell two stories. Go for it. All right, they'll they'll be short. I'll keep it short and sweet. Uh, I actually I, I need to pull up the. Uh, the dates of the witch trial. Would you would you pull yeah. up the dates of the witch trial? Because uh, uh, are I we talking the Salem witch trials? Salem witch trial. And actually, if you hit a little Google search, if you hit up the uh, just write witch trial LSD, and I'll tell you a little bit about the story. And there's a lot of articles about this. So <laughs> there is a theory 
and this isn't necessarily uh, completely provable. You can't really prove it, but there is a theory that the witch trials and the 20 people, sometimes when you read different places, it's more than 20 people that were killed. One guy was smashed by stones was because of fungus growing on rye, which would be called ergot. Now, if you know a little bit about ergot, ergot has a very close relationship to LSD. It's actually LSA. It's uh, one chemical compound slightly different. Uh, Full-on hallucinogenic. Could also cause some physical issues if you're eating that fungus, just like anything that rests in your stomach and is not meant to rest in your stomach. So the thought process, and some people did a little bit of history, looked into it, and uh, the year leading up to that, it was hot and wet and the perfect situation for the usual growth of ergot on rye. So there was a belief system that what happened was people were essentially getting high on something very similar to LSD and acting a little bit trippy, worrisome. Now, that only accounts for a handful of people. And I think depending on where you read it and the different research, they were saying certain individuals weren't near the bread who were originally uh, accused. And uh, after that, a lot of the people that got killed, it was all political because they didn't like certain individuals that weren't very religious or older. And, you know, men and women, no discrimination. There's actually a really dark story. One of the guys, he's the only one that wasn't hung. Nobody burned any of the witches. They hung the witches. But one guy, they placed a piece of wood on him, and they killed him via pressing they kept piling up stones and asking him to give names, and apparently he was a real G, at least how it was written out, and he just said, more weight. Uh, disgusting story. <laughs> Damn. Really dark. But uh, interesting because the, it's undeniable that ergot poisoning is a thing, uh, that the fungus is psychedelic, and that uh, the way that they stored bread in those times, and if it was a hot and wet harvesting season, uh that you run a high chance of getting some ergot poisoning. And it affected different people differently depending on their size, of course, and their age. Uh, but it completely makes sense that if somebody was accidentally spiked with LSD or LSA and they are acting a fool, or maybe they're not already religious or very well liked, that you may, if you're a religious individual with no Google machine or smartphone or science to back it, think that there's demons in the village or witches. And uh, it's so interesting to me. What a cool story uh, that just shows a lot of darkness when we get a little emotional, we get a little over moral, and uh, we couldn't, couldn't necessarily prove. Because here's one thing I, I, we still to this day have not seen any witches, and people got, or, well, people like to call themselves witches and they use essential oils and shit. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but they there's a Monty them. Python reference there. So yeah. if she uses essential oils, She's a witch. <laughs> yes. And what do we do? Burn, Burn out. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a sec. My wife has essential oils. Witch. Oh, shit. Witch. <sighs> she hasn't been dancing in the rain or talking to herself, has she? Yeah, but I think that has to do with 20 years with me. But I, it's probably not that. Yeah. Okay. No. So reading the – so it's an article in the New York Times uh, that talks about the Argot and, and goes into – uh, the trials and stuff like that. This, this is fascinating. I didn't. I, I had no idea that this was a thing. Um, and they. They. It looks like they tested it on a dog. 
<laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, the fate of the dog is unknown. It's quite plausible that uh, it did have convulsions, indicating that observers uh, that there was rich witchcraft involved in the girl's actions. And thus, so so the witch cake is what they called it, right? So they ate the witch cake, which would totally uh, connect back to, you know, the rye being infected with the argot. And uh, they fed that cake to the dog, and then the dog starts fucking freaking out because it's on a on an acid trip. <laughs> Accidental MK Ultra situation. Yeah. No, no shit. That's awesome. It's, it's very fun. Uh, I'll say another statement that uh, so there, there's there's some there's some religious ties to the burning bush as well being uh, quite possibly acacia, which is full. Um, of are we talking about Moses? Yeah, I'm talking about Moses. Like like Ten Commandments shit. I'm talking about Ten Commandments shit. Oh shit. I'm talking about talking to the burning bush. And some people believe that was a metaphor because acacia is extremely rich in dimethyltryptamine, and it would be really common in the area that the story was told, and that people were somehow maybe mixing that with a Syrian rue, which had a lot of ties. Uh, in the area as well, which has MAOIs in it. So you could essentially make a different locations, different form of ayahuasca. Uh, I won't get into that. But my second story, that was just a little middle ground, just fun stuff. That Can you just drop a teaser on it's us? Not pr- it's a, well, I can't that's, pr- that's bullshit for why whiskey. You got to cut. No, no. I, I you, can't prove anything. You got to complete the story anything. and cite your sources. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. You read the Bible. I'm it's not there. the historian. <laughs> I'm not the historian. I got you. But, uh, okay, so here's another really good one, and I like this one. This is my favorite, and I think I've told you a little bit about it before, but Christmas. I love Christmas. Probably I love, my favorite holiday. I don't love um, Christmas. And, and, I, and I really love American Christmas. And I love American Christmas because it's so different for different people, but it's a hodgepodge. It is the American thing. It's the melting pot. We take it, all these different things, and we slammed it together. All these different winter solstice traditions, and we slammed it together. And we've got Christianity in there. We've got Germanic ties. But one thing that people don't really notice is how much of it is Siberian shamanism. And this is cool, and I love it. So the fly agaric mushroom, or sometimes called the, or also referred to as the Amanita muscaria, it's the red mushroom that we see in all our fairy tale books and stuff with the little white dots on it. It has a symbiotic rela- relationship in, uh, with the pine tree, so it typically grows near pine trees, uh, just because of fungi stuff that nerds would know. Uh, so the Siberian shamans would wear these coats, very reminiscent. Uh, in style to Santa Claus. And even today in Siberia, people ride around on reindeer. So I'm going to continue to go. These are just connections. It's just fun. But uh, there was a couple of different ways that people would collect for winter solstice uh, ceremonies, the fly garret. The fly garret is psychedelic, but it also makes you very sick. They would either hang it over the fireplace in stockings to warm, or they would hang it from the tree to dry, which made little red bulbs all over the tree. Uh, now there was a few different ways that people would do the fly garrick. One of the things is the psychedelic compound in the fly garrick mushroom, which I don't know that compound by heart, uh, passes through the body, through the urine and the negative parts that make you sick are only found in like the mushroom itself and actually gets digested. So they would either take a strong individual who wanted to eat it or a weak individual who chose not to, or sometimes even feed it to reindeer and collect the reindeer piss. When they fed it to the reindeer, the reindeer would have a spike in adrenaline because uh, they're having a psychedelic experience, but they'd also become energetic and they would hop around a lot. And they would become these very energetic, shamanic reindeer. Flying reindeer? Are you telling me Rudolph was high? Is that what you're telling me right now? In his little red nose. 
Yeah. Oh my god. god. Okay, but, so, uh, so, how to ruin a childhood <laughs> in one sense? So they would they would collect the urine and they would partake in these uh, experiences with Siberian shamans. Also in Siberia, they still to this day. Uh, in certain areas, because the snow grows so high, they have second-level entrances to the houses. So nobody's sliding down the chimney, but they're coming in through the roof, uh, especially that time of year. Uh, so super fucking cool. It's my favorite. So now when Christmas comes around, I just love Fly Derek stuff, the little red mushroom. I think it's super cool. And uh, I think of reindeer completely differently. Think of Santa Claus completely differently. Think about the pine trees. I see the fly Garrett mushroom. I see somebody sliding down the chimney, and I'm like, "Fuck yeah, American Christmas!" But I wish we had a little bit of Siberian shamanism going on. <laughs> it, so the, the the I think it was the bees nickel. I think is what they called him. Um, it, it goes back to that Germanic thing, but the pictures of bees nickel, right? Which is who, who we now is a modern day Santa Claus. The multi-legged horses. Oh, my God. So scary. Yeah. And there is no way that anybody not on psychedelics thought that up. Yeah. Like, that was, like, it was legit. Like, and when you see the the pictures that they drew back in the, you know, 17th, 18th century of, of Bees Nickel, and that, that, that shit was terrifying. Yeah. And that has become Santa Claus. And, and <laughs> you know what I mean? And that tied in with... With that, I mean, you you literally just ruined. Uh, I'll never watch Rudolph the same again. God damn it! <laughs> but that's that, that's awesome. It's super cool. And I wish I knew more off the top of my head about the Nordic, but uh, the Nordic and Germanic ties. But there's a lot of really cool ones about these multi-legged horses. And uh, essentially, the story just kind of changed as it traveled south and got tied in with Nordic mythology and had involvement with Oki. I mean, uh, am I destroying his name? Or Loki <laughs> and uh, Oki. <laughs> it's because I'm drinking whiskey. drinking whiskey. But uh, Loki and uh, Odin and the winter solstice, they would chase them across the sky and they had flying chariots. And the stories, they change and they're cool. And America has the most hodgepodge of it. You know, we, we throw Jesus in there and then we've got cool kinds of stuff and we just do it all. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's the melting pot. And it's cool when you just go in one direction and you look at the roots. And, and the Siberian shamanism, I think, is the most undertaught part. And it's my favorite because it's the aesthetic. <laughs> oh, I, oh, that was the that was that. Oh. You'll have to pause it. <laughs> he's searching. He's searching around. <laughs> I didn't think we were going to Christmas, so I I didn't prepare. Um, so uh, there's a book called The Battle for Christmas by uh, Stephen Niesenbaum, and he goes through Christmas in America. Yeah, uh, and it talks about like the melting pot. So uh, there was a huge German immigrant population in Pennsylvania, and then there was uh, a lot of European influence, obviously in New York City. So Pennsylvania and New York City were really the creations of modern day Christmas, all involved in consumerism. And one of the greatest lines in his book is is he's like, we 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 look back on Christmases back in the day. And we, we look on those with like a, a good feeling, uh, you know, um, because Christmas now is all about stuff and it's all about buying shit. It's all about da da da. He doesn't say shit. I'm, I'm yeah. summarizing, right? <laughs> but he legit shows you that no, no, it's, it's literally the exact same. And our memories uh, change, yeah. you know, uh, over time. But it's, it's literally been the same thing. But he goes through all of the the developments and how 
you know, different parts and pieces played effect into making Christmas a thing. And it, it, it's a wonderful book. Uh, absolutely incredible. You want to talk about some cultural history of America? Uh, oh, yeah. We we created Christmas. Like it was it was a thing. Like there was all kinds of celebrations um, around that time of the year. Anyway, that go back into you know ancient times. But uh, but that that mirror that that kind of bringing everything together was uh, was awesome. And we we literally built what we think of Christmas now from the ground up. You know, Jesus was born in September. <laughs> like that, it wasn't born anywhere near Christmas time. Um, yeah, but that doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't work with our schedule. No, so yeah, so they, we're going to celebrate like his baptism or his—I uh, don't know, like his uh, we also, circumcision. We, I don't know. We don't even have reindeer, so we can't do the mushrooms anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's riding well, the reindeer. The, there are reindeers. Cars. It'd be I mean, rational if we. Yeah, there's there's reindeers. <laughs> reindeers are a real thing. Uh, do you know that uh, uh, reindeers are actually caribou that are in captivity? No. Yeah, so caribou and reindeer are the exact same thing. Yeah. They're called caribou when they're wild. They're called reindeer when they are. I know the female have horns. Antlers. And, yes, and the males. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Very There's cool. a reindeer farm in Palmer, Alaska. If you ever find, if you ever happen to be in Alaska, well, go check out the reindeer farm. Well, Pretty badass. Might be drinking their piss and riding them around. <laughs> that could be an adventure. Merry Christmas. Right on. All right, so <laughs> we, we are moving into the wrap-up, my friends. So uh, uh, we have been talking about all kinds of things to include Christmas. Now that was, uh, that was a great freaking that was awesome. Yeah, no, thank you. That was, that was fantastic. I love it. So, uh, rolling, uh, kind of rolling up where we were or, or where we've, we've come, we've talked about, uh, legislation, uh, the history of, of legislation for drugs in America. Uh, a lot of, uh, reasons why, we view them as we do, uh, and, and some cultural things that have, have come about or that, that took an influence into how we view narcotics and drugs and those kinds of things and what drugs are and all that stuff. So, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I love when we, it, Austin is the man when it comes to talking about, uh, drugs and he is, he has studied, he, he studies drugs. Like I study whiskey and, and I have been, so educated by our, our time and our conversations. It's been wonderful. So uh, we close out the show. Every guest uh, that joins me here on Why Whiskey has to answer five questions. Oh, Rapid fire. All right. So don't think too hard on them. Banana boat. That might be one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, so we're going to roll into our, our five questions as we, as we roll out of here. All right. Uh, so question number one, my friend, what is your spirit animal? Oh, what is my spirit animal? Ooh, uh, it would probably be the panther. You know, like sixty percent of the time, it works every time. Panther, yeah. Or? You know, I, I would I, probably in the past, I would have been like raccoon or polar bear because they're my favorite. I love trash pandas. I had a personal experience, and it's part of why it's, I got a tattoo of a panther on my arm. All fucking cool. So, yeah, right on. Yeah, won't get in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Question number two: What five items do you keep in your mental health first aid kit? My mental aid, oh. mental health first aid. Kit. Are these physical items? They're whatever. They could be what? activities. <clears throat> they they can be anything. Uh, Jujitsu, skydiving, Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, hmm. What else? Pistol, my Glock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and then there's still a fifth. Mental health, good for me. Hmm. Man, I'm a simple man. 
So here are mine, okay. right? Uh, high proof bourbon, right? <laughs> uh, a phone, Star Wars, a mountain, and a hug. What a hug! It's my yeah. my first aid kit. Mm. Maybe my last one would be cheesy. Maybe it'd be like my wife and daughter. I don't know. That's uh, so person- cheesy. Or what about or personal time? I don't. That's not even an item. Ooh, personal. No, that could. Be, but it's a thing, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Fucking chill time. Right. <laughs> All right. <coughs> Question number three, uh, favorite whiskey or distilled spirit? Favorite whiskey. Uh, I think I still like Sazerac the most for sipping when it comes to whiskey. I really like it. I think it's pretty fucking good. Right on. Good deal. Question number four. If you could know one truth about yourself, what would it be? Ooh, one truth about myself. Hmm. Hmm. One truth. Well, I'm probably why I'm so hard-headed. You know, I don't learn uh, once. You know, I, I, I fuck up a lot, and that's how I adjust fire, and I slightly adjust. You know, if I if I get too drunk, I'm like, you know, I would blame it on the brand of whiskey and be like, I'll get, I just will drink the other thing. I, <laughs> I make slight adjustments, not major adjustments ever in my life, and I do a lot of the same. I stub the same toes, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. That's fair. All right. Final question. Does history scare you? Um, hmm. Yes. I would say, yeah. I would say, and, but it's probably human nature even more than the history. The history just shows it to you. But uh, I, I do believe that even the best of men and women are capable of extreme evils. And, uh, also vice versa. Some of the worst people ever can do some amazing things. And uh, a little bit of nature and nurture there. Right time, right attitude, you know. Uh, really hungry people uh, eat people, you know. And, <laughs> and, and that's something that yeah. history tells you. So, uh, yeah, history can be pretty fucking disturbing, you know. Awesome. Uh, so I, I know you don't do a, a, a big social media thing. Um, so if... Uh, if you have questions for Austin or you want him to expound on something, uh, reach out to me, whiskeyhistory at gmail.com, and I will get those to him. Uh, please include your contact information so I can uh, I can forward that to him and he can contact you directly and uh, answer any questions or thoughts that you might have. Uh, please uh, uh, get on. Talk to us. Tell us what you think about the episode. Tell us what you thought. Uh, give us your questions. Give us your comments. I, I want it all. So uh, I, we love to... Uh, engage with the listeners. So if, uh, if you're one of the fact cheat, or, oh, we'll edit that one out. If you're one of the, uh, the fact check nerds that, that listens to me, um, uh, please, uh, hit us up and, and give us some fact checks and, and make us smart. We, we like that shit. So, uh, going ahead, we've got, uh, we've got episodes coming up, uh, about Frank Sinatra. Uh, we've got episodes coming up about the history of riots in America. That should be a real fun one. Uh, and then I think we're going to talk a little bit about the United States Military Academy and its history, uh, which is storied, crazy, and fun. And we'll probably talk about some parachute stuff in there as well. So, uh, Austin, thank you again so much for coming and being here uh, at the Bar Question of Life Choices. I, I, I love our conversations. They're oh, yeah. so much fun. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, so, uh, hey, you got 30 seconds. It's all you. 
Oh, I got nothing. I got, you got nothing. nothing. It was fun. It was it was, it was fun. Yeah, uh, like I, if anything, I could just reiterate. It'd be uh, you know, if you if you if you find a way to prove me wrong or uh, show some opinions or add to a conversation, then I'm always into it. You know, and uh, typically the 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 webs go varying directions, especially you know, like we said, the MK Ultra. I mean, I feel like every time I pick up a book or read anything or hear a podcast about that stuff, I'm like. There's more. God. <laughs> Who would have thought? It just goes deeper and deeper yeah. and deeper. So uh, I am I am going to take a couple uh, uh, seconds here to to flip the personal switch. So if you don't want to hear some mushy shit, you should just shut it off now. Um, so I have gotten the opportunity to spend uh, a year with Austin in very close contact. We work uh, damn near seven days a week. And uh, I've spent a lot more time with him than I have my own family over the course of the last year. And every single day has been... Uh, an adventure and has been wonderful. And it, it all culminated last night with uh, him putting together uh, a farewell uh, thing. I've, I've had a bunch of farewells uh, over my my 20 year uh, uh, history with this organization. And uh, this this is one that will will never go away. And it will be always uh, measured uh, Everything else will get measured against this, uh, which goes to the kind of person he is. He is so attentive, and he listens so well, and uh, he's just a fantastic guy. And uh, the ability for him to come into this position and to work with me, who's uh, very demanding, uh, lots of energy, and a little bit sporadic at times, uh, he managed that beautifully and uh, took it, uh, ran with it, and did some some really incredible shit so I am going to greatly miss our conversations every day, uh, but it, uh, I will I will hold dearly the time that I did get to spend with you uh, and the the wonderful things that we shared. Uh, one of the great things about Austin is we we had to kind of establish ourselves initially um, because we both love to share and we love to conversate that we would interrupt the shit out of each other <laughs> when we, we were first having conversations and so once we got that figured out it was awesome we 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 definitely uh we figured that out but austin um inside of work outside of work professionally and personally uh you're the man and i i really appreciate you thank you so much for everything man hell yeah you're awesome thank you all right, friends, that'll wrap it up for us. Uh, thanks for coming to the bar. Questionable Life Choices. Uh, this is Ian. This has been Why Whiskey. We've been talking about drugs. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, or would like to join me at the bar, Questionable Life Choices, for an episode, Hit me up on email at whiwhiskeyhistory at gmail.com. Cheers. <laughs>